This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. think has been on the list since the very beginning when we started this thing and I've been pretty excited to finally uh, delve into it and read it yeah. uh, I cover was to cover. not able to get a copy of this book but this did bring me back to a book uh, that I feel like I've mentioned uh, a publication of the somewhat sus publishing house uh, Feral House I believe mm-hmm. called uh, The Controllers uh, which is basically mm. about like the MyLab theory of alien abduction uh, which okay. kind of in- uh, mentions this case incidentally or like the military like uh, PSYOP like take on, on alien abductions and uh, there's a whole chapter on this on this case uh, that we're going to talk about today so mm-hmm. it was an interesting uh, you know route back to, to that that book yeah yeah and has some good material the- on it honestly yeah, and I think um, what makes this such a good uh, topic to explore for us is it's really kind of a foundational narrative in the sort of legacy of other narratives that we brought up around around the various MK Ultra programs and the uh, you know uh, the alleged like Project Monarch and things like that things that came up during Michael Aquino's uh, public inquisition in the 1980s and have come up. Uh, kind of reverberated throughout conspiracy culture for the last mm-hmm. uh, few decades. And, yeah. you know, we, I, we've mentioned people like Kathy O'Brien before who wrote transformation of America and Bryce Taylor who wrote thanks for the memories. But before those books came out in the nineties, there was one that caused quite a splash. And that is the CIA's Control of Candy Jones by Donald Bain, which I believe came out in 1975, I want to say. 76, my bad. came out in 1976. Yeah, yeah the mm-hmm. story of Candy Jones, too, had, like, circulated, like, well before that. I think that, like, before, even before, like, people knew about MK Ultra, like, any stuff like that, you know, like, back when, like, people knew about, like, the idea of the Manchurian Candidate, obviously, and, like, stuff like mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, the idea that like there could be brainwashing obviously was like a thing when this was going on, but like it wasn't really 
disclosed or like you know publicly acknowledged that the cia had experimented with the stuff during the time that it was mm-hmm. like circulating uh yes and that, yes you know, it was it became a thing on on the radio and stuff you know so yeah uh, yeah and it, it did it did an early uh case of this it, it maybe is the earliest case where something was publicized uh, kind of far and wide that the CIA mm-hmm. engaged in this. And it, and it was really, um, it, it was it was some real synchronistic timing for this book to come out because uh, basically within a year or two, it's even kind of the investigations that were going on into CIA abuses in the mid-1970s, like the, uh, try not to laugh, but the Rockefeller Commission <laughs> about CIA abuses. I'm sure they got everything. I'm sure they turned over yeah, every rock. definitely. Uh, yeah, every Rockefeller. Uh, but, yeah, you know, then, of course, the... The slightly, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, the Atlanteans covering their tracks, but uh, also, you know, there was the somewhat more formidable uh, Church and Pike committees in Congress that, for the first time, actually did expose the existence of the program MK Ultra, which Richard Helms, when he was CIA director, I believe back in 1973 during Watergate, had mo- what he thought were all of the documents destroyed relating to that project but i guess a certain number of them a certain number of expense reports were misfiled and you know the wrong cabinet and somebody eventually found them and so that was the first hard evidence that the cia had in fact engaged in mind control experiments on americans often unwittingly and on various various types of americans everything from soldiers to prisoners to mental patients and if this story is to be believed, even relatively famous professional models, yes. right? Uh, yeah, so this I think is the first in a lot of ways where it's also kind of like the first kind of like beta sex kitten like monarch yes. mind control situation because she was like a, yeah like a pinup girl like one of the biggest yeah. pinup girls in America who we're talking about Candy Jones mm-hmm. during World War II. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So. Yeah, it was kind of uh, a forerunner of the whole, like, Ariana Grande is, like, triggered by butterflies to, like, I don't know, service, whatever, like, uh, reptilians. In, yeah, like, the Satanists yeah, who run the, yeah, like, the music industry, yeah, like, the satanic Freemasons right. who, you know, mm-hmm. control the record labels, it's et cetera. Kind of yeah, exactly. I got so many Vigilant Citizen vibes while I was reading this book. It really was the right. first uh, of its kind. Yeah, the whole and, thing with, like, altars, you know, like, all mm-hmm. Billy Eilish, etc., like, Cardi B or whatever, they all have altars, like, you know, this... Yeah, they put a wig on, or, you know, altars, Be- whole, Beyonce turns yeah. into Sasha Fierce, Sasha Fierce. Uh, yeah, Nicki Minaj whole, turns into Roman right. Zelansky when they go on stage. <laughs> they they even... Uh, maybe we'll get into yeah. it a little bit later, but they the, the way that a lot of people talk about how the, when they go on stage and perform, that they enter almost a kind of hypnotic trance state where they're able to just perform at the absolute highest level you know and singing and dancing and it's like an out-of-body experience it kind of makes you just wonder a little bit because i think as as is very uh very astutely outlined in this book that the methods by which a doctor might hypnotize you could take on a variety of different dimensions as we talked about in our Estabrooks and Erickson episode and both I believe Estabrooks definitely comes up in this book um, that so there are a number of ways to basically induce hypnosis in somebody that are basically as Estabrooks described like it is absolutely possible to hypnotize somebody without their consent 
And so right. that is basically what happened to Candy Jones. And you could imagine all kinds of things with all these NLP, new agey practitioners and, you know, doctors to the stars and people that might work for a record label or something along those lines. You could imagine like a million ways to Sunday in which a star who maybe is suffering from quite understandably maybe from pressure or anxiety or stress or exhaustion hey you know what there's this really great technique have you ever tried hypnotherapy and then you know i'm not saying that like that's how like sasha fierce was like constructed but it's in there it's a little bit easier than i think most people would think right um i mean i mean not yeah. everybody can be hypnotized i should also preface that this book reiterates what uh what esther brooks said in his book that People exist on a spectrum of kind of hypnotic suggestibility, and probably maybe one in four people are capable, reasonably, of being hypnotized, but then maybe there's one in ten people who are hyper-suggestible, and then there's maybe one in twenty people that are like the creme de la creme, and that is, those well, are the types of yeah. people that... Hold on yeah, one second. The guy's like problem. literally just trolling outside of my door right now. He's sitting outside <laughs> of my window, like yeah. blaring it. Um, it probably will show up. Um, okay, he went away. All right, sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. The Aston Brooks would say there's like a one in four people thing. Erickson, uh, who was you know uh, someone who Aston Brooks really admired and who was generally just a larger figure in the hypnosis world, would say that uh, you know anyone could be hypnotized. Although there's you know, a range of different takes on, uh, you know, what is possible with hypnosis. But uh, in terms of the dissociate, like, you know, the dissociation of the personality and you know, the whole Manchurian candidate thing, which is basically what this case deals with, is something like that, where it is presumably like a kind of sleeper agent alter persona uh, that, like, definitely there are certain people who would be more susceptible to, to that because there are people who already, like, have DID or who already are prone to dissociating. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that respect, like it would be natural that certain people would be, if you were going to attempt that, you would have like a, a certain, you would have a greater interest in someone who already had some dissociative qualities, uh, yes, which, yes. you know, people who like are in, in a way, like, you know, especially like the world of like Hollywood or like fame and stuff like that. It uh -huh. can be, conditioning in and of itself you know and it attracts certain people who like i uh, might be needy in certain ways you know so uh sure it sure is, it makes you think about child actors as well you know yeah. going on mm -hmm. like the pressures that or the the sort of socialization they receive and the pressures they have to sort of deal with when their children you know trains them at a very young age to and you know i mean think about it as a child actor you kind of have to like switch into an altar to do your job and yeah. so you could see maybe how even just in like acting exercises, it makes me think of that scene from Body Double, the De Palma movie, that is basically a ver a, a version of like Synanon attack therapy, but in the context of an acting class. And he's right. trying to highlight how inherently uh, like psychologically abusive even just acting training can be in Hollywood. Yeah, so if you think about that applied the to a acting child, training that like Richard Schechner used in Dionysus '69, you know, yeah, yeah, witness. But yeah, like uh, and uh, according to Candy Jones, you know, she got into this because she was uh, like a, an old USO colleague 
who uh well of course was like a retired general right mm-hmm. uh yeah yeah general sims is the alias i i haven't been able to track yeah. down exactly who he is yet but right yeah. yeah but he first got her involved in some courier type work and then uh he sent her to go uh deliver a letter to oakland california you know because she had business in the area anyway so she was going and then, because of course uh, the East Bay is involved yeah. in the story. I actually didn't know that 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 Oakland played such a prominent role. It's like, of uh, course, here we are again, like <laughs> back in the East Bay. Like we can't escape it every episode. Um, yeah, uh, and that was uh, yeah, that was actually kind of a pivotal event because when she was delivering this letter to Oakland, it turned out that the guy who the letter was addressed to and who she delivered it to was this guy who Donald Bain in the book gives the alias Doctor Jensen. Uh, we also can't, we don't know for sure who he is, but we do know that he had actually treated her previously when she was in the USO, like in 1945, you know, she got sick in the Philippines and she was treated by this guy. And then, you know, later on in the sixties, uh, when like in 1960 itself, I think, yeah, 1960, yeah. when she was living his letter, it's the same guy. And then he's like, oh, Hey, like, you know, uh, would you like their you know her modeling school i guess at the time was kind of faltering that's what she was doing when she was like you know yeah. at a modeling academy um and i guess it wasn't really making a ton of money so they're like we'll give you a bunch of money if you go along with the our other stuff and one of those things was being like a hypnotic subject according to her story um yeah yeah so, though she yeah, was she, not aware she, of that at consciously her main personality candy was was not aware of the hypnotizing aspect of it she thought that she was just being used as a courier like yeah you know, well basically, yeah after uh, the fact of course she didn't well the whole idea was that yeah like maybe at the time she agreed but uh you know, well actually no in the book music, like she well, the fact yeah know, i mean the way you know yeah. the, the uh, way she describes it uh is that basically she and i guess this is common uh, with highly suggestible people that are susceptible to hypnosis where they insist that there's no way you could hypnotize me and mm-hmm. what in this case this doctor dr jensen an alias uh said was okay and then he went on this kind of monologue about the evils of mis of abusing hypnotism and Mm -hmm. how it had some very beneficial medical uses but unfortunately these particularly stage magicians and hypnotists were really abusing this you know uh, amazing kind of uh, natural you know technique or whatever uh for you know parlor tricks and to make people do stupid things and was really selling the name of the whole thing and really you should avoid them candy and not you know never go to anybody like that and let them try to hypnotize you and then he just kind of casually goes well actually do you want me to show you how they do it Because, you know, you can't be (laughs) hypnotized, but, like, let me just show you. And she goes, okay. And then he basically hypnotizes her under the pretense of showing her how one hypnotizes people. You know what I mean? So it was a kind of thing where – and then she had no recollection of that actually happening until she did uh, a kind of hypnotic uh, regression therapy with her husband later. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. just to set the stage for, like, how this book came about before we dive into the content – just real quick, like an overview of who Candy Jones was. She grew up in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. She had uh, her father left uh, the family. She had a very kind of abusive and controlling mother and a kind of grandmother who she loved very much but who died. And 
she had a lot of um, lonely, psychologically abusive kind of situations going on in her home uh, when she grew up, which is going to be very important later. But anyways, she <clears throat> ended up uh, moving to Atlantic City, and then she entered and won the Miss Atlantic City competition when she was a teenager, and I guess got some attention after that, uh, or, or some encouragement from people, um, to try out modeling. So she went to New York and basically signed with a, a modern, uh, sorry, a modeling agency. Eventually, ended up uh, at the agency of a a big titan in that era, a guy named Harry Conover. And this guy was interesting. They mention it just slightly in passing in the book, but he, this guy was one of the, ran basically one of the top modeling agencies, you know, in New York, in the country. And um, she would eventually marry him after World War II in 1946, and it was disastrous. But he was the originator of the concept of a cover girl. And this is very bizarre, but with a mat in 1946, or I'm sorry, not, nine, not in 46, but earlier, with a matching investment of $500 from a young male model who was also his roommate, Gerald Ford, <laughs> currently the president of the okay. United States, he's writing in 1976, Conover had formed the nation's most prestigious modeling agency. And so I guess, I don't know, what to, I, first of all, I forgot that Gerald Ford was like a male model. He was also like a star yeah. college football player, but uh, but like he was the co-investor and like founder of this like super powerful modeling agency. Very weird when you consider that Gerald Ford. What there's a lot. I mean, he was put on the Warren Commission. There are some stories that he was even in Dallas at a party at Clint Murchison's house the night before the JFK assassination. He almost got killed himself by. A squeaky Fromm, who's a member of the Manson family, possibly a hypnotized uh, subject, you know, assassin, <laughs> and another woman who I, uh, Sarah Good, I want to say, who had connections to the Symbionese Liberation Army and the Getty family, or no, I'm sorry, the Hearst family. So very weird there, and that also when uh, you know uh, the brother of the reincarnated uh, Pharaoh of Atlantis, Nelson Rockefeller, was vice president and would have become president if Gerald right. Ford, you know, bit the bullet. Uh, but I guess he got lucky. So that that's already kind of like a hmm, okay, and. So, uh, you know, I believe Lawrence uh, Rockefeller was the Pharaoh of Atlantis. Yeah, that's what I meant. Like Nelson was but, the I brother mean, they probably of were, he was the probably Pharaoh. in the Atlantis royal family. Yeah, he was still in the royal family. Yeah, he was probably. a prince. He was an Atlantean prince. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. right. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it, people always forget like the Rockefellers like warmed their way after Watergate into being the vice president. And then like two different women tried to like kill the president. And then if Nelson Rockefeller hadn't died of a heart attack. I remember the rumor being that it was like while he was like having sex, he, he died of a heart attack in like the late 70s. Uh, right but, now. you know, if he hadn't, if he, uh, you know, taken that adrenochrome like David Rockefeller did, he might have been around a little longer. But anyways, so, yeah, there's already like weird, uh, some weird things there. But anyways, it doesn't seem like she had a pretty good ride uh, starting out as a model. I mean, I think she was 16 and she went into uh, Conover's office and he was called a, a photographer kind of looked at her she was 16 at the time and um conover invited her in and then like stared at her for a minute and then he said hmm candy johnson i think 
and she was like what and he was like that's your name candy johnson yeah all right and then like he just gave her her like stage name right there but then i guess she kept forgetting it so she kept miss saying it as candy jones and eventually Mm -hmm. he just said "Uh, why don't you just be candy jones and he i guess he really like went all in on the candy concept like he would always dress her up and like candy patterned like bathing suits and uh, i mean yeah you know okay but yeah whatever uh maybe it was innocent Uh, um oh by the way it was sarah moore who tried to kill uh, yes sarah Sarah moore that's what it was yeah right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yeah. it's very bizarre but uh so Mm -hmm. conover you know he starts putting her and she starts booking you know modeling jobs and stuff and i guess her controlling mother kind of really hated this she wanted candy jones to go to secretarial school but you know candy jones was very good at this so then world war ii breaks out she's already like an up-and-coming model and she becomes a uso girl basically traveling uh, around to different theaters and particularly the south pacific and putting on shows and just you know doing performances and stuff and has a real i guess overall like a a real this is a real whirlwind kind of experience and she's very invested in kind of the war effort and feels very patriotic so she's working for the uso and i thought this is interesting so she ends up in the philippines in 1945 when general macarthur had you know liberated the island um or you know recaptured it for the u.s imperialist and she was you know doing shows there and then she came down with, uh, what was it, like undulant fever or something like that, um, and then malaria on top of that, and got really, really sick. Um, she, noted, she noted that later on that there were, quote, special services officers that wrote reports on all of their uso performances and like sent them back to like headquarters and she joked they were like you know basically theater critics and khakis uh writing these like meticulous reports about you know and and said that it was like a pressure but like a a good pressure a good kind of pressure to Mm -hmm. be at the top of your game and stuff like that because they were you know writing i don't shouldn't say what kind of special services whether that was the oss it might have been because you probably have a bunch of you know ivy league like dandies like that's the job i want i want to review the uso show with the pretty girls you know or something like that but she just calls them special service officers but then she gets really sick and basically ends up in the hospital and i guess her her special services officer her kind of handler bill talman checked her into a philippines hospital yeah for undulant fever and malaria and then when she was in the hospital she caught jungle rot from the sheets that she had and her hair started falling out and her like her face was discolored and this is very distressing for her obviously as like a young beautiful model that all these things are happening so she was stuck in this hospital in the philippines for a while but while she was there she met an army medic uh i don't know if he was a doctor at the time but the alias we mentioned before dr gilbert jensen and Mm -hmm. she met him in the hospital and i guess he gave her his contact information to like keep in touch you know once they were both back uh in the states and whatnot and she also got to know a i guess around just around that time in general in the philippines she got to know an army officer who later would become a general who has the alias of general sims and i have not been able to figure out the identity of this general but he kind of struck up a kind of friendship with her and eventually she recovered and it 
seemed like everything was okay. And she went back to New York after the war. And then she ended up marrying Harry Conover, the head of the modeling agency. But unfortunately, uh, she quickly discovered that he was, uh, he was bisexual and not very sexually interested in her. Uh, she she recalled that uh, th- I think somebody asked her when they consummated so her relationship. Gay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I pretty well. Well, uh, actually, yes and no. Yes and no. But he really was just kind of all over the place, and just and he, yeah. I guess, uh, you know, she she was asked when did you consummate your marriage? They were married on July fourth, nineteen forty six, and she said sometime between the wedding day and Christmas. And I guess he told wow. her on the wedding night, look, like, right. I don't want to... only I, have sex with her when he was drunk, right? Uh, yeah, had, yeah. And, and he said, look, like, I don't want to get too tied down and everything, like, on their wedding night. And basically <laughs> was like... Uh, later on, he told her, quote, your large bosom disgusts me. Um, because yeah, it, okay. she, he... To the extent that he liked women, he liked more kind of waifish, kind of, right. you know, yes. uh, skinny mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that quickly started being a an unhappy marriage. But, you know, she was also able to uh, get into like the world of business and she started kind of her own modeling management company. She wrote a number of books on kind of how to books on the modeling industry. And she signed a lot of accounts uh, to like provide models for. But I guess Conover insisted for prestige regions that like even if she got the clients that they'd be like billed through his agency and all that kind of stuff and eventually i think it was around they ended up i think they had they had three kids and were you know on the outside living a pretty good life but then in i think it was around 1950 like in the very late 50s conover like wigs out and disappears for like a month or two and doesn't tell Candy Jones where he's going. She eventually finds out that he has gone, and I guess, I don't know, he left New York for a while, and then went and rented a suite at the Plaza Hotel, and was just, like, camping out there, and, like, hiding from her. And she did say uh, that she discovered that while he was there, he was throwing, like, raucous parties and kind of like almost like kind of orgy parties sounds very Epstein basically Mm -hmm. and uh she found out that he was actually messing around with two teenage models who Candy represented at her agency and had like helped you know start their careers and stuff and um basically he was like uh, yeah doing some Epstein stuff with them and so that was like a huge blow that was very like upsetting to her um also he withdrew all of their money from their joint bank accounts and then blew it all and so then like they were completely bankrupt and yeah like finance he basically financially ruined them and then they got divorced and she had to she was being chased by all these debtors that were trying to you know she i guess the way they set up their business you know it it really bit her in a bad way and her modeling agency was not profitable even though it was prestigious and you know that all led up to like 1960 where she you know she still had her modeling agency but things were difficult her three boys were in private school she was a trouble she had trouble paying for it 
and was kind of, you know, at the end of a rope a little bit. And I guess there was a former heavyweight boxing champion named Gene Tunney who happened to rent out the office across just across the hall from her, from her modeling agency. And one day she saw a woman who appeared to be a cleaning lady kind of jiggling around with the lock late at night. Uh, after he had left and then like finding the right key and going in there and she thought it was a little odd uh, but then the next day they found out that his office had been burgled and so then a couple weeks later like a a young guy and a woman also showed up and she kind of caught them and they were like oh oh, we were just looking for Mr. Tunney and like ran off so there's like some weird things and then one day um, an FBI agent comes in and starts chatting her up, and he kind of mentions that he's there to look into the Gene Tunney thing, but then he notices the, like, hypersensitive kind of hidden microphones that she has, which I guess she had bought from the Candid Camera. I guess it used to be Candid Radio or something before it was Candid Camera, but the guy who created it had these, you know, hidden microphones to, you know, Mm -hmm. pull pranks on people and stuff, and she had bought these off of him, and he noticed them and says, hey, those are some pretty interesting microphones. I'm actually, like, staking out a place on 57th Street right now. Do you think I could borrow one for a few months? And she was like, uh, okay, yeah, I guess so. And she thought it was, like, a little weird that an FBI guy wanted to borrow her mic, but he did, and then he came back, and broached this idea of like hey do you think it would be okay if i sent some mail to your office and then once a month somebody would come by to pick it up you know it would be just you know doing your patriotic duty not really a big deal you know we just need people that we can send things through and i guess you know he might have offered money at that point you know which she desperately kind of needed and she was still very patriotic trusting american so she said yeah why not then after that one day she's walking into her building and she bumps into who else general sims from the south pacific from the war this guy she used to know and so general sims you know they they start chatting and he happened to be grabbing lunch with gene tunney the heavyweight boxer and i guess you know they uh they she thought it was a little weird to like run into him in this context but Uh, I don't know. It's a small world. But then a few days later, she's visited by this FBI agent um, named Ted. And actually, I'm sorry. She ran into General Sims before the FBI guy showed up. So there's this weird burglary stuff. Sorry, one second. We're going to hold for this. All right. Okay. I'm just going to take that from the top. Okay. So, so before, so the office, the Gene Tunney's office is mysteriously burgled. And then mm-hmm. she runs into General Sims outside of her building, who just happens to be getting lunch with Gene Tunney, and they chat. And then a few days later, this FBI agent who introduced himself as Ted shows up. He asked to borrow her microphone and then asks, can we send things through your office? And not uh, long after that, he asks her when she's going to be on a trip. I think it was to judge a beauty competition in San Francisco. He asks her if she would deliver a letter to a doctor in Oakland, and I believe when she gets there, she realizes that, oh, this is Dr. Gilbert Jensen, the medic who treated me in the hospital in the Philippines. How how funny. And, you know, I mean, uh, by all... by By her initial recollection, all she did was drop off this letter to him and then go back to New York. But as was found out later... A lot of uh there's a lot more going on so anyways that that was like 1960 61 so this kind of thing 
apparently went on for about 12 years until I think like 1972, roughly. Mm-hmm. And the real turning point for her, and this is a real like crux of the book, this is, this is kind of why we have the book, is she met this very eccentric New York City late night radio host named, Doc, yeah. named Long John Nebel. And he was kind of like the original like Art Bell. Like his show was like this sort of forebear of like coast to coast and that type of style. Mm-hmm. It was like an overnight show, and it was really about like these types of subjects, like UFOs, like the Shaver mystery, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I would I like, would go a bold step further on conspiracy stuff involving yeah. you know uh, this the CIA, this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would even go further and say that he is like a perhaps. I haven't listened to him, but he he sounds like you know a a, a spiritual forefather of subliminal jihad itself in a way. Um, yeah. But obviously, everything that came in between, yeah. he was a real pioneer. I mean, everything probably from Alex Jones to yeah, coast to coast, yeah. and mm-hmm. a lot of maybe a lot of more like KPF kpfa type stuff as well um and i think he occupied the midnight to 6 a.m time slot and he would do so i that's really what made me think because this dude would do six hour shows five days a week like i mean Mm -hmm. even we couldn't reach that level of stochanovism uh that (laughs) is, is pretty impressive and so they met and just like totally like hit it off and i think they got engaged after maybe like a month and a half and it just they really clicked and i guess you know all of all of long john neville's friends like loved candy jones and just thought she was like so cool and you know not uh they said you know not like a typical model and just like a delightful person and you know, had this kind of even a little bit of awkwardness and was very disarming. You know, when people comment her on her beauty, she'd just say, Oh, well, I have good bones. You know, was a little embarrassed and like it all seemed to be good. But then Long John Nebel noticed, and I think the first time he noticed it was on their wedding night, that Candy Jones kind of had, she seemed to, to sort of switch into a very different mood and even kind of personality for like brief moments and was a very different person than the candy that he knew and had fallen in love with, who was very sweet and kind of, you know, uh, chill and all this stuff. This woman was, you know, curt and like kind of sneering and like hostile and like, you know, uh, kind of thing. But I think it was just like a brief kind of moment of like, she said a thing, she came out of the bathroom and said a thing or two to him that just really caught him off guard. And he started noticing this in the first months of their marriage that it would happen kind of, you know, uh, semi-regularly and kind of just out of nowhere. And he and she would never remember acting this way. She would have kind of complete amnesia about it. And I guess she started to join him as a co-host on his show. So she was staying, you know, up from midnight to 6 a.m. And I guess started to develop kind of insomnia and trouble sleeping. And would also, as kind of a maybe, I think staying up all night might have exacerbated this or whatever, but she started to have, you know, more and more of these like little kind of outbursts and stuff. And uh, Long John Neville was getting concerned. So I guess he had read a book or something about hypnotism that had just come out. I think there was a famous book called Hypnotism, Is It For You? And I think he kind of thought, 
it would be interesting to take it upon himself. Um, yeah, there was Lewis Wahlberg. Hypnosis is it for you? He thought it would be interesting to maybe see if he could try to do a, a kind of um, you know hypnotherapy on Candy Jones to just help her fall asleep. And that was when he did it for the first time. And when he did it, basically this other personality, uh, not only did this other personality start to emerge, but like memories from her childhood began to emerge and all kinds of very interesting stuff that kind of got his attention. And so he and he realized right away that Candy Jones was highly suggestible. Like, I mean, he was not a professional hypnotist by any means. I guess he did a good enough job to get her in the state. But as mm-hmm. uh, Donald Bain, the author, kind of says, like, probably anybody that would have tried this on Candy Jones would have been able to succeed because she is really she is one of those creme de la creme, like one out of 20 people that has an incredible uh, ability to fall into a hypnotic trance. And uh, so he started doing that and things started coming up and she started hinting that really she had been living a kind of strange double life uh, from like 1960 to to, to the time when she met him. And that's when the, the first contours of this this whole web start to emerge. Right. Mm-hmm. trying to see what uh what page here maybe i can just read a little uh because th- there's some good recreated transcripts in this book of the actual conversations donald mm-hmm. bain makes a uh, he makes a a very you know big effort to kind of set these things up and describe them as like they're not reproduced exactly verbatim they're kind of compressed a little bit for kind of readability's sake um and also that you know this is kind of this isn't a totally bulletproof process it's very liminal right Mm -hmm. so you know it it is possible that hallucinations can creep in to memories that are being recalled but also he put he puts his foot down pretty strongly that you know uh recovering memories through hypnotic regression is a real thing and does work in a broad yes. sense uh it's not uh, like a perfect science but mm-hmm. it, it, he yeah. he i mean he's gonna certainly in the case of candy jones uh he feels like i mean there there is corroborative evidence of some of the stuff she would say so it's not like you know but he also says that like it, in a criminal court basically you know as far as like law enforcement and the judicial system is concerned um they they don't actually take uh, and and he kind of says maybe you you shouldn't necessarily take um, hypnotically recovered memories as absolute gospel, but what they are is they can they can provide context and clues that can kind of tell you where to look to find things that can corroborate those stories. And he he uh, he gives a few examples of criminal cases where the FBI used like hypnotic regression on some witnesses that um, I think it was a case where people were dying of poisoning in like a veterans hospital and they were able to hypnotize some of the patients and then they were able to remember something they were able to remember like some of the nurses like spiking 
like injections with poison or something like that. Now, they couldn't go and arrest those nurses right away, but then they went and investigated them and they were able to find evidence that, in fact, they had done it. And then those people were convicted. So it's that kind of thing where, you know, it can provide a very salient lead to a thing that really happened. And then if you're lucky, you maybe can corroborate it in the outside world, but you do always have to take it kind of like with the with a little grain of salt. Yeah. But of course, mm-hmm. we're, we're not here to just uh, yeah, erm Candy Jones. I like we're about some recent, uh, you know, like uh, or I remember recently hearing. I don't think it was a recent incident about like someone who was sent to death row on the basis like kind of, of like forensic hypnosis evidence, like in the seventies. Uh, really? Turned out to like not really be uh accurate yeah i think that there definitely is like you know the thing about like the whole like thing of like false memories false memories a lot of the time the things that are dismissed as false memories are any memory of like being ritually abused or like manipulated by like the cia or something like that where people are just saying like i remember this happening and they're like oh well you know that is something that i don't believe in so that's a false memory like yeah that's not the same as like a memory being recovered under hypnosis you know uh that's like suppressed or something not to say that like this might not be real uh but there definitely is that kind of there's some weird things like around it like the fact of who her husband was you know the fact of his existing interest in this you know one wonders at least like well then was that like part of the op in some way that she married this guy you know who was like a conspiracy radio host sort of or at least a sort of paranormal like esoterica radio host you know like Mm -hmm. uh and why like you know uh but that is an interesting thing to consider there were you know there are some things like uh you know for instance uh in the book that i mentioned by martin cannon um uh the controllers you know he mentions like some things that you're like oh well maybe like uh like i I guess candy jones said to him a telephone call the cia had like a file on her um but they wouldn't release it but Mm -hmm. you know it's like uh without seeing it or like hearing their like own den- denial of like an fo uh foia request or something like that it's hard mm-hmm. to like really because there is always like that question uh you know of yeah like what is because they're like even though yeah even though the idea of the government actually doing this like was not widely accepted like it definitely was like a fictional trope but yeah. again, like you know, yeah, like as you said, uh, we want to explore the, like the possibility, like while you know leaving open the other potentialities, like there, you know, maybe there's like other takes on of this, course. like even more yeah. than just like the purely skeptical one or like the you know the official yeah. story. Well, um, the the purest skeptical one is that Doctor John Nebel and Candy Jones cooked up this story together kind of for his radio show to just Mm -hmm. be this big story and you know i think that that that's assuming a lot of negative intent on like candy jones and long john nebel and like not assuming negative intent on the half of like the cia so i'm gonna personally throw that one i'm not sold on that at all I, I yeah, think that I think whatever happened here was a genuine thing that Candy Jones experienced and mm-hmm. John Nebel. Yeah. Basically, what he did after once he realized that there was a kind of th- this kind of state had been kind of like uh, programmed into her, then he started recording the hypnotic sessions. So he had like at hundreds of hours of audio tapes 
of his conversations with the hypnotized Candy slash her her alter her alter ego who was named Arlene Grant. Um, right. And I think the other thing her about name in real life was Arlene. Yeah. And yes. Uh, and and that goes back like all childhood the childhood friend. Yeah. Like or uh, imaginary imaginary friend, friend as a child. Yeah. Because um, she had like a very abusive childhood actually like the same way like you know she would have these sort of uh stories of her like being well i guess we'll get into them later but she would go through like these horrible experiences as part of her role as a cia agent you know she also had like these types of horrible relationships with like authority figures and like these horrible abusive things going back to her parents uh which probably has something to do with, you know, maybe yes. she had the and personality that, have, That's yeah. going to be really important in this whole narrative because it's the confluence of two things that we've, like, discussed before, but I think maybe we haven't discussed them fully in tandem with each other. I mean, we did somewhat in the Estabrooks episode, which actually I think the same passages we read from that are in this book, but uh, basically about how you could induce what was then called multiple personalities through hypnosis and how basically we'd also, we've definitely mentioned before the kind of over, I would say like probably the, the normative theory about DID and MPD is that it's a result of kind of extreme like psychological or physical, physical or sexual trauma in young children Mm -hmm. and how that it's a thing that develops out of like early childhood trauma and so Candy Jones was in a way basically perfectly a perfectly primed candidate for this kind of, you know, hypnotic uh, inculcation because she had already developed basically it, it it seems pretty clear she had developed DID organically as a result of the abusive relationship she had with her mother when she was a child. So she actually had a fully formed alter kind of in her psyche right off the bat when dr jensen kind of met her and started doing the hypnosis and then this book basically postulates that once he discovered that there was this altar that already existed he kind of realized that was like the path of least resistance and that was the easiest thing to do it was a boon really that instead of constructing a whole alternate personality he could use this one who was kind of the alpha dominant Uh, personality of candy jones by her own recollection like arlene was strong she was confident she was fearless like she could run faster she was stronger she didn't take shit from anybody you know she was like cynical and and you know unflappable and all these things whereas candy felt like she was weak and she was vulnerable and scared all the time but like when she had to she could switch to arlene and she described it at one point that like i think john neville asks her you know, do you like, uh, do you not like Arlene? And she's like, oh no, like Arlene's gotten me out of so many jams in life. And at a certain point was like giving Arlene credit for everything she'd ever done that was like, you know, notable. Like Arlene had written all my books. Like Arlene was on stage, like in the performances, like Arlene was on Broadway, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, John Neville was kind of uh, tortured by like trying to like convince her that like no you did this like it like he wanted her to like feel confident in herself but i guess that's the nature uh at least in some cases with did where the personality is fragmented it's not unified into a whole and Mm -hmm. i think you know there there, there's some interesting nuance in this book just about 
uh, multiple personality disorder. And granted, this is the mid 70s. So I think there's been a lot of research yeah. and you know understanding of it uh later on but it does it does uh air out kind of like some you know some areas of dispute in the field where you know i think one doctor kind of a uh, he, he sort of says that maybe perhaps it's kind of a it's a, i don't know it's a little bit of a misnomer to call something like multiple personality disorder like it's kind of a like a a a philosophical projection onto the patient of like us defining he says you know in reality all of us have to some extent a multiple uh, multiple versions of ourselves but they're kind of more or less like integrated at the end of the day the thing that makes did or mpd kind of pathological and harmful is when the uh, the different sides are not a, the different alters are not integrated and they're not fully they're not like simultaneously aware of one another. They're kind of slipped. But he said even that is kind of liminal and perhaps like they come to accept that they have multiple personalities, quote unquote, because the doctor is telling them they do. So really it's like you're assigning a name to a tendency in your personality, which happens to be more exaggerated than with mm-hmm. kind of the average individual, but maybe yeah. it's still it's still more diffuse and complex than just like switching to like the new person. But also these people tend to be some of the most highly suggestible people, people that have kind of natural. Well, it's never like naturally occurring, but people that outside of any government program just ended up with DID from like childhood abuse. They, I guess, tend to be much more suggestible and hypnotizable than the average person so you know that so so then if you tell them you have 17 personalities like they bring up the sybil case in this the very famous one you know at the time um who who claimed to have 17 personalities but they said you know is does she really have 17 personalities like not necessarily literally but this is a conceptual framework that has been projected onto it and i think that was an interesting kind of because i do think it probably there does seem to be something highly liminal about like did that we maybe fully haven't cracked yet or the you know scientific world at least publicly has not cracked yet but could also see if it almost doesn't matter if especially if you have some kind of secret government program that is going to inculcate in you the hypnotic suggestion that you have like 17 personalities then that's probably what you're going to believe and you'll probably act accordingly that's kind of what it sounds like well i think like a lot of these things like are you know language is always uh in some some ways incomplete uh and inadequate to like a phenomena but like even beyond that like i think that a lot of like mental illness stuff and we talked about this before like a lot of things like uh, this course around mental illness like the, the taxonomies that we have for for this are you know uh in some ways like just tools and frameworks that can be helpful or like to doctors or like you know can be useful uh to understanding like uh, or dealing with or uh controlling phenomena maybe people who suffer from them or you know the people who treat them or like the people who maybe want to do something else uh and the same Mm -hmm. thing is true i think of like even of something like hypnosis that's true where it's like you know uh, are you going to like into a hypnotic state like uh is it is there like a state you know is the mind does the mind have such a thing as like a subconscious you know things like that like yeah how much these constructs really 
apply you know uh so well, it's yeah know, bane uh, um bane does mention that a little bit he does say that basically everybody has basically the capacity to slip into a hypnotic trance and in fact i've read this elsewhere too in more like recent writing that basically we all, we all have the capacity to do it and pretty much most of us do and the yeah. kind of most obvious example of that is like daydreaming when you kind of zone out and then yeah. you kind of lose track of time or something like that right. that is basically the same type of brain pattern activity that we're talking about it's just a little bit more pronounced and you know basically it can be guided by a controller a hypnotist you know and then yeah, they or, can suggest yeah, like, things or when to you're hyper focused on something when you're doing mm -hmm. any kind of like meditation like when you're yeah i think that there's like and i think that it's different like uh you know depending on the situation the context and i also think that it changes based on you know the perceptions of hypnosis by the person you know i think that people hypnotize themselves in a way uh yeah. with their attitudes about hypnosis you know with their oh yeah 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 no bane yeah. actually he uh, makes that exact point i mean he talks about how meditation is basically a form of self-hypnosis um mm -hmm. so like you know if you do tm you can just psyop off yourself into all kinds right. of things i mean and he talks about like the amazing ability of the body in a lot of these experiments that people did with hypnosis that would seem to defy what we know about human biology and our central nervous system and how we experience pain i mean they talked about how in age regression uh therapy or age regression experiments um like in one like in one case it, he believes it's real donald bain believes that it's pretty much like this is a, a provable thing though it's not exact it's not an exact science uh so if you regress somebody to age five they might kind of talk like a seven-year-old like how they were when they were seven but that doesn't right. mean the phenomenon yeah. is fake uh but he says that like in one case they had a they're subject who's pretending who was, you know yeah they're not, not like pretending, they're pretending. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but and he said, even in like you know, in a situation where someone is hypnotized to do something, and they're like, "Oh, well, I was pretending to be hypnotized," you know, after the fact, they're like, "Oh, I'm yeah. pretending." To well, but if they did what they were hypnotized to do and went along with the instructions of the hypnotist, then like, what what's the really difference? Is the difference, you know? Yeah. So, exactly, and uh, yeah. that Candy Jones also did say that repeatedly to both Dr. Jensen and uh, Long John Nebel that he like she had a very difficult time accepting that John Nebel was even hypnotizing her. She thought she was asleep. Right. And mm -hmm. so and would and he'd play back these tapes for her and she'd be kind of like horrified, but uh, Bain said that she could not philosophically philosophically accept that basically she was turning into this person Arlene Grant and recalling these memories and all these other things it just seemed like ridiculous to her and I guess that's like a common trait like the more hypnotizable you are the more insistent that you can't be so I guess everybody you know uh should watch out <laughs> you know uh you know if you think you you can't get I wish there was like a test you could take you know like just I I, I would just like to know I, I don't think, think I'm very hypnotizable I don't know I my personal opinion is that everyone can be hypnotized but I think yeah. that it requires, like, a framing where, like, you'll kind of accept it. I don't think that, like, you know, you can definitely be conditioned, uh, like, over time against your yeah. will when you know someone's trying to condition you 
and like break down your will and human spirit like you know mm-hmm. lots of people can be conditioned in that way in mm-hmm. terms of like hypnosis like in the you know erickson sense like you know yeah i think anyone can be hypnotized but like you it has like finesse has to be used like and it's not something that if you're like fighting it you know someone can't wave a pocket watch in your face and like make you become hypnotized like there has to be some kind of like you know no uh, for sure which is why the they like you know dr jensen used the the i guess this is the tried and true technique of like let me show you how hypnotists do it so I can yeah. show you how dangerous it is and how you should never trust them. And then, you know, the, as long as you get somebody to say yes to participating in it, you know, in yeah. whatever you're doing. And they even say that the the, the kind of, you know, the, the sort of uh, undulating clock or the spiral, anything like that, that's all kind of like a bag of, like, tricks. And basically the only thing that's important about that is focusing the eyes on a very yeah. particular point. And so you right, could do that with yeah, just like stare like at that focus. picture on the wall yeah. or close like your eyes. Or something. Yeah, yes. closing uh, your eyes works like pretty much just as well. But but mm-hmm. they also said that for some people, especially those who are very skeptical about the efficacy of hypnosis, that using those things like a swinging stopwatch or something like that or a pocket watch actually does help because it helps them yes. buy into like the ritual of what they're doing and of then course, they're able yeah. to so there's a lot of things of like you know I don't want to go too hard in like the mind over matter but it is fascinating like what the human body is able to kind of endure or do to itself under hypnosis. I just want to read like one or two examples here like that Bain lists. Uh, he talked about how in one of these hypnosis experiments, they had an epileptic patient, and when regressed to an age prior to his first seizure, uh, an electroencephalograph recorded his brain patterns as normal. When progressed to an age after the onset of epilepsy, the readings became abnormal. So like that's weird, right? That's not supposed to be a thing that happens. You can't trick yourself into not having epilepsy anymore, right? And, you know, he talked well, about... Uh, I don't know. Like, it's what... Yeah, like, uh, maybe... Well, exactly. Is, like, I mean, epilepsy is a mental illness, right? Like, it's a phenomenon of the mind, so I don't see why... Like, it wouldn't be possible, Uh Yeah, well, like, I mean, with, a, a lot is you know. uh, not even, like, fully understood about kind of... Uh, it's still a mysterious yeah, kind of villain. It has to do with it has to do with like electrical like, electrical know. neuron firings like between yeah, the two like hemispheres. What like machine were they using in the seventies? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff, but like I don't. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah. The um, electroencephalograph like, is kind of. But they, you know, they also talked about things that I, I've seen mentioned uh, in all kinds of different. I don't know, books and YouTube videos and things like that, um, where, you know, like pain, uh, pain resistance is incredibly like he, he mentions one experiment where they would, they would basically take, you know, an electric wire and then they would get like a saltwater patch and put it on somebody's hand and then attach the wire to it. And because it's wet, just a tiny little level of voltage, like 15 or 20 volts is absolutely painful and unbearable. And a normal person would like never be able to do it. But if you hypnotize somebody to in, in such a way that they believe it's not real, you can shock them and they won't even flinch. And in the same way, you could take somebody and hypnotize them and connect them to like a, uh, you know, a, an electroshock, a compulsive uh, electroconvulsive, you know, therapy thing. 
and it can be not actually connected to electricity but i guess maybe as long as like the buzzing sound is there and they're going like clear or whatever uh the people will tense up and react like they're getting electroshocked in exactly the way yeah. that they would when but they're not they're just not getting electroshocked I mean, I so it's even like think you need to like i feel like that's something where it's borderline you almost wouldn't need to hypnotize someone to get the latter reaction uh then, you know, you're right you're right that placebo yeah, effect like, um, yeah yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. even the placebo um, effect is like an, a kind of an example that everybody, yeah. you know, is applicable to more people yeah, that, you know, sure. you can. Yeah, or if you tell someone like that, they're, if you tell, like, same thing you're saying about it, if you tell someone they have a split personality, if you tell someone that they're smart versus if you tell someone they're stupid, you know, that's like conditioning over time, you know, like, yeah. uh, it's uh yeah exactly and um, it it made me think of it really made me think of like all the other stories and uh not to go too far down that rabbit hole like right now but just in general like the the hypothesis that kept popping into my head over this book was like if there was a monarch program if there was a successor to whatever candy jones was involved in say in the 1980s uh or even you know more recent than that like how central was hypnosis to basically doing that? Cause I think there's one way to read like the Fritz Springmeier version of like, you know, the Illuminati handbook to create the ultimate undetectable mind control sex slave, et cetera, that, you know, um, in, in the more really gory harrowing evil versions of this, which have popped up in like, you know, the Franklin scandal and Aquino and Kathy O'Brien it's all about like deliberately inflicting severe trauma on small children. Right. Yeah. That seems to be kind of the dark truth of like, why would they be abusing children in this way? If perhaps they're trying to induce DID on them. And I I mean, I'm definitely not like, I'm I'm not throwing out that possibility because I think that the people involved in this type of stuff are capable of that. Even the Kathy O'Brien stuff, a lot of time it's just like straight up blackmail and threats almost, it seems like, you know, like uh, Kathy O'Brien has like programming kind of, but a lot of the stories, it just seems like she does what they say because she'll be killed if she doesn't it almost you know uh but yeah yeah yeah. Uh, which i mean if you want to think if you want to take it down to a more mundane level uh which you know like think just think about the relationship of like yeah i think we mentioned this recently of like a street pimp like the psychology of a street yeah, pimp. yeah or epstein you know, and like his sex slaves you know yeah something like that yeah though i i think um, with epstein maybe there was like i mean none of the stories that have kind of come out in the mainstream press uh hint at him doing anything more than classic pimp sex trafficker kind of tactics on people you know basically a combination uh, yeah. of threatening them uh inducing them with like lots of uh, gifts or you know financial yeah. benefits um and then you know like using a lot of psychological manipulation basically which is yeah, yeah. kind of a classic pimp thing so it's like if they're able to do that uh and maybe putting aside epstein because like he might have had all these like weird kind of intelligence uh yeah he could have been doing you know with all of this science eugenics shit like he might have been kind of he might have had some tools at his disposal let's say but let's just you know take your average pimp like on the street or whatever um kind of doing that that that's a very uh, tried and true uh, kind of organic uh, technology or set of strategies to manipulate people doesn't necessarily involve hypnosis with a capital yeah. H, but it does involve a kind of conditioning and a kind of a mix yes. of coercion and like seduction and all those same kind of dynamics. Yeah, exactly. So, mm-hmm. 
you could see yeah. like would they have to and then also you know throw in this idea of and i mean even there's even aspects with the pimps where you know obviously there's legal reasons why they do this but don't they always they they give these girls a, a new name right yeah a lot of the time like you're and, yeah you you're know, your destiny you now you're candy like, like yeah like flowers and candy and then like you know the extreme you know and you like uh can get like that sort of like triggered like reaction you know of like fear like if someone like routinely hurts you you know Mm -hmm. uh and it does create like a certain kind of stockholm syndrome i think like you know in uh you know people who are abused i mean this is like you know an abusive dynamic that you see all the time where Mm -hmm. like you know why doesn't she leave you know is the question that people always ask and there's obviously many answers to that question and one of them is that there's an aspect of manipulation that happens, a certain dependency that is, like, built up over time through these techniques that, you know, or through these, like, patterns of behavior or, like, a relationship that people, like, you know, it's not like uh, people who are abusing, like, their girlfriends or their wives have, like, studied it like this, you know? It's just, yeah, exactly. Like you know, the, this this flows quite it. naturally out of a, yeah. an abusive personality, basically, or it's, you know, in a way, yeah, I mean, it's complex, but it's something that it seems like people are just able to, like, innately tap into if their minds are yeah, kind like of being, a... you know, I mean, this is like, a na- if you're thinking of it as actually being, like, training someone, if you have, like, the object in mind of, like, training someone for a, a job, you know, whether it's, like, to be a prostitute, like, in your employ, or to be, like, a courier or something, you know, for your intelligence operation or like an assassin let's say you know Mm -hmm. that's kind you know if you think about the way people train animals you know like pavlov's dogs you know you can treat dogs cruelly and like you can use like a punishment like military system and like that works but there's also like and people kind of like intuitively know how to do that it's one of like the first inventions of humanity in a way you know is the domestication of animals you know which yes. are uh, much more trainable than human beings uh yeah you know, so yeah it, it's always been yeah. the holy grail yeah. right like they they you know people uh like psychopaths in positions of power would love for us to be some kind of livestock or dog or something like that that mm-hmm. would just like yeah. uncomplicatedly like follow them and yeah i mean even when you think about like the the lexicon uh, of you know pimps like the idea of turning a trick is like that uh, i feel like that must come from kind of uh, getting a dog to do a trick yeah maybe yeah something like that so it it is kind of this there's this inherent like pavlovian logic at the heart of it that is kind of has been with us for a very long time so it in a way it's like you know i think a lot of those things might be uh operating in the mix and then if you throw hypnosis in there it just gives you an even more powerful tool to like completely i mean i guess you know if somebody say is you know uh, a sex worker who has a pimp even if they do have a kind of like Stockholm syndrome kind of relationship, it's conceivable maybe that you say if you arrested them and you threatened them with a lot of jail time, if they didn't give up the pimp and, you know, give over evidence that would get him arrested. Uh, Maybe a lot of them, even if they were devoted to him, maybe they would like, it's very complicated. It depends. Right. But maybe a lot of them could, if you pressured them enough, like they could do that. But I guess the benefit According to these 
CIA doctors that Candy Jones was involved with would be that she wouldn't even be able to tell you any incriminating information because she would have picked it all right. up she in a different hypnotic state. Yeah, and the right. current state that she's in, which would be, you know, yeah, like she wouldn't be even if they tortured her, she wouldn't be able to tell them anything of value. And that was like the the real holy grail for these scientists. And we have to assume probably the 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 leadership of the CIA who are signing off on all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, what you don't really know, like, the information that we have about Project Monarch is so scant, like, there's no, like, official information about it, really, Uh, so it's all just, like, from various stories uh, that, Mm -hmm. you know, so, but it's something like that, insofar as that is, has a relationship to the actual, like, experiments that the CIA and other intelligence agencies did with the control of the mind, like, again, kind of like we said in our, you know, in our hypnosis episode, uh, recently, our hypnosis episode with Estabrooks and Erickson, mm-hmm. the idea like of hypnosis is kind of like you know an organizing concept around like control of the mind, you know, and uh, that's something like the techniques of it or the sort of uh, repertoire of concepts associated with it. Like we know those are things that like were experimented with, as well as like other stuff, you know, other kinds of subliminal suggestion or like conditioning, yeah, NLP, uh, anything like that, you know. Yeah, so uh, I'm sure that like if there's an extension of you know this that goes into uh, of mk ultra for instance that goes into other you know mind control or it can develops on that on that pattern again like it's hard to say what you're talking about we're talking about project monarch like because if you're speculating you know you could just go to what some of the you know uh alleged monarch whistleblowers say and like they give a pretty good rundown on like what the nature of it was but there's you know there's discrepancies between them uh and there you know yeah but and yeah, I, th- so. I think sometimes it's a little bit like talking about MK Ultra, where you're really using it as a catch-all umbrella term. You know, sometimes, I mean, yeah. for example, like, who knows? Maybe this program was technically part of MK Search or MK Often, yeah. because those were some right. of the successor programs in the 1960s. But eh, we can call it MK Ultra. Same with Project Monitor, because we don't know exactly. It There's been yeah. intimations that such a program with that name actually existed, but... We don't know how, and, and th- this book even it gives a little bit of uh, of of rope to like the skeptics, you know, if they want to basically not fully indict the CIA for just being totally involved in this. Like he, uh, Donald Bain, at least entertains the idea of like, well, what if Doctor Jensen kind of started out doing this as a very like low key. CIA research project but then he kind of was a mad scientist who like went further with it even without the CIA knowing about it uh I don't I don't even think he's convinced of that idea but you know he throws it out there as like a possibility that eh, maybe but I'm more of the mind that when especially when you look at who these guys how prominent these guys were and how and the people that they socialized with and all that I, I I think that whatever they were doing was a part of the whole web. I, I don't think they were going rogue at all. Um, so, yeah. I just want you boys to see what you're fighting for, that's all. Hello. I suppose some of you are wondering what I'm doing here. Well, you see, uh, some of you fellows have written to me and requested a real good pinup picture of me in nothing but a bathing suit. So, here I am. 
Oh, I, I have a lot of other bathing suits at home, but the photographer told me you would like this one the best. Because I'm a pin-up girl. That's what they name me. I'm the kid who loves you all. Don't be shy. Come on and frame me. Stick me in your locker or against the wall. Pin-up girl. You've all embraced me. I'm your dream. Your game rush. Many eyes have sweetly faced me. Spectacular pins or mucilage at night while you count sheep. I'm watching all your bed from above. And while you're fast asleep, baby, I know what you're dreaming of. Your pen up girl. My clothes are daring. They're not much. I must. I swear I'll go on wearing less and less for my pin-up dress. If it will bring you happiness, all my charms for you on first. I'm your little pin-up girl. So I think maybe we should talk about like what happened once she got inducted into this program with Dr. Gilbert Jensen and also the bringing to the surface of Arlene Grant, her alter ego, which Long John Neville did not exactly, he was not aware of at first. He just thought it was like a different side of her personality, but he quickly realized that at first he thought it was just her imaginary friend coming back. But then he realized that basically, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just read this little part right here. This, uh, the spotty acquaintance with his wife's history would be forced into perspective during the spring of 1973 by the emergence of another person into the world of candy and John Neville. No specific date can be attached to the first appearance of this new entity because no record was made and because it happened so fast and unexpectedly that Nebel had all he could do to cope with the difficulties of the moment. Also, it took a while for him to recognize that he was, in fact, dealing with another distinct personality because when she first appeared, he assumed it was just another of Candy's peculiar changes of mood. It was that voice, that alien, icy, antagonistic voice, a rusty knife that severed the calm of the apartment. Quote, what, first, what made me first realize that this was different from past episodes was that, this is capitalized, the voice came at me and stayed around, says Neville. Before, it was only a comment, a look, and a few seconds of bitchiness. But when I was first faced with having to deal with it, it was like another woman had slipped into the apartment and wanted to take me on, like a guest on the show who has a chip on her shoulder. Neville's first brush with the other woman during a hypnotic session occurred sometime in early June 1973, before he installed the tape equipment in the bedroom, and he describes it from memory. Yeah, uh, I asked her where she was. She told me she was in my office. I said I knew that, and she didn't have to tell me she was in my office. Then I asked who I was. She answered me in that snotty voice I'd heard before that if I didn't know who I was, why should she even be there? I was really confused. I didn't know what office she was talking about, where it was, or who the hell I was supposed to be. I mean, she was talking directly to me in a trance, and I fumbled around to figure out who she thought she was talking to. 
I told her I was just testing her memory. She laughed that bitchy laugh and told me I was Dr. Jensen. I asked her if this was the first time she'd been to my office, and she told me that I knew it wasn't her first time. She was speaking to me like I was a damned fool, which I suppose I deserved in terms of what she was experiencing. I asked her where the office was located. She again was very scornful of me for asking such a dumb question, but finally said it was in Oakland, California. I asked her what she was doing in my office. She said she was there to get her vitamin shot. I asked her what her name was. That really bugged her, and she became angry and said I had a nerve asking her name. She asked me what my name was. I said Jensen. Then I asked her again for her name. Arlene, she said. I asked her what was her last name. She said Grant. I asked her where she was born, and she said Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania. I then asked her if she knew Candy Jones. Oh, yes, she said. She's weak. She has no strength. And that was it. I brought her out of the trance, and she looked at me with the softness I'm used to with Candy and said, Oh, John, what's wrong? Did you wake up? It was following that session that Neville went to Irving Miller at Bryce and purchased his TC-142 recorder. So that was basically, yeah, that was when he realized something really big was going on, and that's when he started recording these um, these statements. And Arlene has, like, quite the personality. There's a lot of transcripts. Uh, I think this is the first one that he recorded, and I'll just read a little bit from it. Uh, and uh, basically, um, Bain, said, Bain does uh, preface this by saying, uh, the following is a transcript of these two important sessions, condensed where possible without losing or altering material. I ask the reader, again, to bear in mind that this, like all transcripts in the book, does not accurately reflect the tone and tempo of the sessions. There are many long pauses, inarticulate responses, and lengthy attempts to elicit an answer to certain questions. Just prior to turning on the tape recorder, and immediately following his recognition that he was talking to Arlene, Nebel asked her whether she was a strong person. He turned on the machine. So here we go. Arlene says, yes, I'm strong. Have you been? Not well. What has been wrong? She's very upset. Who is? Candy. I haven't heard from you for a long time, Arlene. Where have you been? Waiting. Waiting for what? Arlene, after repeated attempts by Neville to get an answer, to go. Where do you want to go? Or have Candy go? Arlene, with a sneer, she's going. Where is she going, Arlene? Wherever I send her. Wherever we send her. Who's we? You. I, and who else? Her voice a dark threat. No one else is necessary. <laughs> Why would I want to send her any place? I hear you. I hear you. I know you. Sure you know me. You know my name, don't you? John. How did you happen to come tonight at this time? She's weak. In what way is she weak, Arlene? She couldn't hold me in. You know I love her, don't you? No. Neville tries to get her explain why she feels he doesn't love Candy. She eventually agrees that he has treated Candy well. Arlene says, she's weak. I have to take over. He asks her in what way she has to take over. I'll step into her shoes for a while. Do you think you have that right? She has that damn stomachache. Neville proceeds to ask Arlene a series of questions, but she ignores them and simply makes flat statements. He finally asks her whether she likes Candy. I have to. I'm stuck with her. How else do I get out? Neville tries to get her to tell him why she wants to come out. She sighs a great deal and stretches as she ignores his questions. She finally replies, Because it's very boring to do nothing. Don't you think Candy is doing a lot? She's upset. Do you think you have a right to interfere in her life? In a spiteful voice, When she's weak, I can come out. What would be a sign of strength on Candy's part as far as you're concerned? 
No tears, none of this garbage. She sounds disgusted. Did she ever cry when she was a little girl? <laughs> Not when I was there. Do you know if she did cry when you weren't there? Scornfully, she was weak. She cried alone, alone. She was lonesome, very sarcastic. She wanted friends. Neville then turned the conversation to Dr. Gilbert Jensen. There had been an indication during previous sessions that Jensen, in some unexplained way, had been involved in Candy's life beyond what Neville had earlier been led to believe. He asked Arlene now whether Jensen had done Candy any harm. Arlene says, I did it. You don't like us. You don't like any of the group. You mean Willie and the rest of them? It's not for you. What's not for me? Nonsense. This nonsense. You label me nonsense. Neville brings the conversation back to Dr. Jensen and asks Arlene whether Jensen did Candy any harm. She didn't even know what he was doing. She thought he was a doctor helping her. What did you think he was doing for her? Releasing me. What method did he use to accomplish this? Injections. Candy had told John in a previous occasion that Dr. Jensen had administered vitamin shots to her when she visited his office. Neville asks Arlene whether the injections she refers to were vitamin shots. They were. It made me strong enough to come out. How do you know they were vitamins? Neville had always been suspicious of the shots because, according to Candy, they'd been administered uh, intravenously rather than the muscle of the arm or the buttocks. They weren't vitamins. They were vitamins to her. But you know better. I know better. I listened. Neville then brought up another question concerning Dr. Jensen. This was prompted by material that had emerged during previous conscious and hypnotic conversations and which had been causing an increasing tension between them over the past few months. It had to do with Candy's apparent distrust and even hatred of an inordinate number of people, particularly ethnic groups. She was, on the one hand, seemingly without prejudice, but there were times when her spoken feelings about such groups did not correspond with what Nebel knew about her from observing her daily actions. And once, while questioning her about it in the conscious state, she'd referred to Jensen. She hadn't accused Jensen of anything, but her mention of him in the context of that discussion caused Nebel to again question the role Jensen might have played in this erratic side of Candy's behavior. <clears throat> so John continues, do you think he caused her to hate a lot of people? Arlene laughs and says, everyone, that's the whole plan. That was Jensen's plan? Is that what you're saying? He kept her away from people. She laughs again. He made her hate people? Not hate people, avoid them, avoid relationships. Why has she used the obscenities to refer to different ethnic groups? She doesn't swear. I didn't say swear. She doesn't swear, does she? Yawning. Oh, not really. She doesn't say obscenities. I mean, using derogatory terms to describe different ethnic groups. Did he teach her that? I don't know what you mean. Are you going to sleep now? If I do, I may not be here when I wake up. Where will you be then? She'll try to get me back. I want to go out. Look up. Look up. Look up. Look up at the sky. Do you know her mother is ill? She's dying. She knows it. She's not admitting it. Was her mother nice to her when she was a young girl? Arlene snorting. You've got to be joking. You know she wasn't. I wasn't there. Do you think her mother was bad to her? She criticized her all the time. All the time. She broke her spirit. That was the idea. Break her down. Break her down. Her mother did it. Harry Conover did it. I watched it. I wasn't around with him, but I watched. Did you like Harry? If I could have come out, I, what would you have done? Scared the hell out of him. You never scared me. He would have been scared. So that was, I guess, the end of like the first uh, session with Arlene. And you can see, you know, she's got 
an attitude. And as mentioned there, there's a, a later chapter that does go further into depth about the weird um, adoption of racist sentiments that seemed to particularly come out uh, when she was in a trance as Arlene. And she eventually did say, basically, uh, so there was another doctor, I think that's worth mentioning. And uh, like we said, it's a little complicated. For legal reasons, Donald Bain used aliases for all of these CIA doctors to avoid getting sued. And as far as we've been able to tell, there might be information uh, somewhere out there where somebody has sleuthed this, but there's only one real-life doctor that had been exposed, but there's disagreement over whether or not that doctor was Gilbert Jensen or Gilbert Jensen's superior, who is another prominent Californian doctor named whose alias is Dr. Marshall Berger, um, who Bain describes as a pioneer and leading authority in the field of medical hypnosis. His stature brought him into contact with many familiar names in government and show business. Hmm. And he enjoyed this proximity to fame. A dynamic, craggy-faced egotist, Berger enjoyed being close to the glamorous women of show business, especially film stars, and his eventual move from the Midwest to Southern California was prompted in part by by this weakness. Another reason Berger moved to California was to be close to the government-sponsored experimental programs with which he was closely identified. He'd begun working on such programs during World War II and was one of the first doctors to probe the potentials of hypnosis as a tool of war. His sponsor for that project was the Central Intelligence Agency. As the CIA's experiments in mind control progressed into the 1960s, Berger became the project's messiah and undertook to train other physicians for the company, and one of those physicians was Gilbert Jensen. And <clears throat> I guess... Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and he, also... Cannon's book. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I just yeah, want to mention... The, oh, yeah, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah, you yeah. want to say something? Go ahead, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was going to say that uh, he claims to have gone through the files of John Marks, um, mm-hmm. who was the guy who wrote the search for the Manchurian candidate. Yes. And that's where I think the identification of Marshall Berger with Dr. William Kroger comes from, is from those files. But John Marks, I guess, didn't necessarily make the identification with them, nor, I guess, a Donald Bain. But according to him, that's what the those files that Marks compiled when he was researching that book say. Um, which I guess he interesting. Would be able to look through. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So that that is the one. Okay, so I guess that's where the one identification comes from. Doctor William S. Kroger, who <clears throat> has both been described as being Doctor Gilbert Jensen and uh, Marshall Berger. Uh, they, I forget what the other uh, case was that where they said. Let me just see. Um, and it's kind of yeah um let's see a doctor um yeah so on this uh one of the few there not a surprising lack of kind of follow-up research and things like that i feel like there was more when i discovered this like five or six years ago on the internet and it's just buried by google but uh the one fragment yes martin cannon uh is the one who interviewed candy jones before she died in 1990 and according to her according to that the marshall Berger alias 
in Bain's book, who worked with Jensen, was actually Dr. William S. Kroger, a psychologist at one time associated with UCLA. No big surprise there. And uh, also, but then also, uh, it says right before that, at least on this article, the doctor who treated Jones told her that his name was Dr. Gilbert Jensen and claimed to be a young medical officer, but in reality, he was Dr. William S. Kroger. Um, so it must be an error in the, by the writer, especially if they say later on that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they say yeah. later on. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, it just and I, I'm sure if I uh, sleuthed it, because these guys were uh, at least uh, Dr. William S. Kroger was prominent enough that, uh, and you know, anybody that's heard the Esther Brooks Erickson episode will be interested to know that. You know, they obviously they were in a very specific field together and they were not strangers because Kroger co-founded the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis with Milton H. Erickson in, uh, I think. Yeah, I honestly it, wouldn't be surprised if like G- X to Brooks was Jensen. If, you know, assuming every, you know, this is all like uh, it could like all the details are remembered exactly accurately and everything then I feel like Esther Brooks would almost be uh, a shoe-in for that role, like with the timing of everything. Uh, but you yes. know, it could be someone else. There were only so it, many people who were trusted like to do this type of hypnosis at that time. It can't be, yeah, so, you're right. It can't be that like, big of a field of people, basically, that to choose from. And I already had some names running through my head. And actually, the funny thing is, I the, the whole time I was thinking, was William Jennings Bryan the third? one of these people because he is somebody who I think according to God, I think it's like a, maybe Jennings according Bryan. to a couple high priced escorts uh, William Jennings right Bryan uh, well you know there's William yeah. Jennings Bryan the perennial presidential candidate and then his grandson oh. I believe was a CIA oh, psychologist I yeah okay, who uh, I, yeah. I, I forget I'm forgetting the source of it right now it might have been mentioned in the chaos book but that William Jennings Bryan the third bragged i guess at one point to some high-priced escorts that he was partying with in la that he was the hypnotist and psychologist of sirhan sirhan and programmed him to kill well not actually kill but programmed him to attempt to kill and be a patsy and so that was kind of hovering uh in the back of my mind the whole time but then i found in this chapter about um, uh, called Taught to Hate, where it talks about the weird, like, racial uh, prejudice that seemed to be, you know, hypnotically induced in Candy Jones. Uh, there's a little passage here because I guess, you know, she was being taught, and there's actually a few things in here. So I'll just read, uh, I'll just read this. Um, that, yeah, so she said, uh, when Neville was basically, you know, had her under trance, um, and she told Neville that a, quote, man from California had taught her to avoid all people, particularly blacks, Jews, and Italians. She reiterated her distrust of the Chinese and Japanese and mentioned she had seen the terrible things the Japanese had done during World War II. She finished the session by saying that Jensen taught her always to listen but never to say anything. Dr. Marshall Berger had taught her the same thing. Berger, in his teaching role for the CIA, conducted seminars in various parts of the country and was a founder of a CIA-funded institute in Northern California. Now, I think that has to be SRI or Esalen, one of the two. But anyways. Did um, exist at that time? 
I believe it opened in the 1950s. Um, so yes, during the time that she was doing stuff, it absolutely was operating in the early to mid 60s. It was definitely around. Um, it was. Well, let me was see. She it might. 1960. Yes, she was. Yeah, this time period of her operating is like 1960 yeah, right, right. to 72. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. Esalen was founded in uh, 1962. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and actually, and also mentions there was like an institute in Northern California, and yeah, and he knew what it was, but he wouldn't say either. But it did seem. That's like very that weird that they wouldn't. That nobody will yeah. just say it. like so many weird things happen at SRI, and you know, Esalen was founded by two Stanford graduates, Michael Murphy and Dick Price, yeah. and uh, and and Aldous Huxley was like deeply involved. I think from the very beginning, and uh, Hunter Thompson was just running around as a lowly security guard during this time, just being random and inventing Gonzo journalism. Anyways, um. Yeah, so uh, this could either be SRI or Esalen or maybe a third place. But uh, but anyways, uh, Candy visited this institute on at least two occasions, according to material taken from two lengthy taped hypnotic sessions. Nebel vigorously pursued the question of Berger's and Jensen's programming of Candy and was able to ascertain that she'd been given a series of tests at the institute, most of which had to do with her senses. She So it sounds kind of like uh, parapsychological a little bit. She said during a hypnotic session that she was tested by Berger for her sense of observation, smell, touch, taste, and hearing. During that hypnotic session, Candy said that the tests were administered to her by one of Berger's assistants, a woman in a white uniform who Candy described as, quote, a zombie. Candy ranked highest on the scent test, and this is perhaps why Gilbert Jensen often burned incense in his office while inducing a trance in her. During another hypnotic session, Neville was able to pinpoint the date of one of Candy's visits to the Institute as June 3, 1968. Candy wasn't sure at first whether it was June 3rd or June 5th, her confusion having to do with the time change and with not being sure the specific day she left New York to come to California. It was also brought out during this session that Gilbert Jensen had studied under Berger at the Institute. Jensen boasted to Candy about Berger's tutoring, and she accused him of being in awe of Berger and of wanting to be taken into Berger's confidence. In another hypnotic session, Nebel, playing the role of Gilbert Jensen, asked Candy whether she liked Berger. Candy said, I don't know. I don't like him or dislike him. I don't know. I don't know. I wouldn't want him as a personal friend. Why do you ask? Well, we work together. You know that. I know you'd like to work together. What do you mean like to? You'd like to get in with him, wouldn't you? You seem to think he is so wonderful. Why should I try to get in with Berger? I know as much as he does. He's no brain. Everybody thinks he is. Who? Well, you always talk about him as though he is so important. Him and his fat friends. They're all fat. What fat friends? I don't know their names. Um, so, okay, yeah, so not only was she programmed to be racist, also programmed to be fat phobic. And, um, yes. yeah, yeah, but the, but so what jumped out at me, because I was reading, like, oh, him and his fat friends, William Jennings Bryan III was notoriously rotund and was, like, 300 pounds. Like, he was a gigantic man. So, uh, uh, actually, but... Yeah, I think, by the way... It was William Jo sorry, like a you know minor point, but it was William Joseph Bryan because I was a bit like thrown by that. But no, 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 uh, no, 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 grandson. But no, it's it is William Jennings Bryan. It's in the book. I'm looking at it right here. Oh, uh, hmm. he might have had another grandson that was a sus. Yeah, if you do William Jennings Bryan, uh, let me see. Unless Donald Bain. Yeah, I mean, he might have been uh, incorrect. Yeah, because well, I remember discovering it maybe in Operation Mind Control. Oh, you're right. It is William Joseph Bryan. That 
maybe that maybe the typo in this book like wormed its way into <laughs> into other it's books. Very likely. I mean, all these books yeah. kind of slight each other. That um, that's but, a weird that is a very weird thing because it's like oh that's why I haven't been getting good you know Google hits on this guy is because it's misprinted I am looking at it right here William Jennings Bryant written in the book uh, so what are you doing here Playboy yeah. Press by the way who published uh, well, this well is it William Jennings in the book is it William Jennings Bryant or William Jennings Bryant I can't like quite hear if, if it's it's a uh, it's it's B R Y A N like the yeah okay politician so like the guy yeah mm, yeah but I guess yeah. William J Bryant like the medic name like instantly yeah like mm -hmm. recognizable so yeah it is william j brian but yeah uh yeah william joseph so he does actually have his own wikipedia page and yeah was involved in psychological warfare during the cold war and modern hypnotherapy and yeah so he was uh he he was the other big i mean even more so than um than Estabrooks in terms of his prominence he was really the the second guy that was up there with Milton Erickson and i i mm -hmm. think they worked together um he also yeah I mean, even on his wikipedia page it says he was involved in project artichoke and mk ultra and in behavioral engineering of humans he developed techniques of what he called hypno conditioning his published research from that era focused on the forensic and military range of psychological research um and so this guy is like a major sus lord uh and like i said yeah he did brag to some people at some point that he was the guy who hypno programmed sirhan sirhan but I will say this, which is kind of interesting, that, uh, you know, Donald Bain, I guess he, he knows his audience and <clears throat> he put a little asterisk there under fat friends. And his footnote here says, Nebel admits to having wondered whether the California psychiatrist, William Jennings Bryant, sick, uh, you know, might have been involved yeah. in some right. manner with Berger. Brian had been linked to the CIA and had been the technical consultant for the film The Manchurian Candidate, which dealt with hypnoprogramming. He was to learn from Candy, however, that oh, not only was... Yeah, yeah. So according to Candy, not only was Brian not involved, she had never even heard of him, despite his flamboyant manner and penchant for publicity. Hmm. Huh. So, well, hmm. I mean, that's like the whole thing with this, that there's many like, uh, you know, wrinkles and like many layers to it. Like on one hand, like, yeah, I also like wouldn't say that it seems like they like made this up as like a con job because like why even bother like recording all these hours of tapes like it's obviously not like you know that this guy and his wife are like running a con you know yeah. they might be like sort of like psyoping themselves that would be like the least you know that would be the you know most skeptical that i think would be remotely tenable was that they were like you know involved in the, like uh something to do with like her childhood blah blah and like his interests like coming out then, like, even if, like, we take this to be real, then, like, you know, that she was involved, like, uh, in some kind of, like, sleeper agent thing, like, her testimony about it would naturally be, like, you know, well, how much of it can we take uh, to be true? Especially if they're manipulating the memories and things like that. Like, you know, if you, you know, it goes both ways in terms of what, like, since these things are recovered through hypnosis, if they're yeah. induced by hypnosis, you know, the, all the things mm -hmm. that are, you know, co possible through the first, you know, hypnotic induction are possible through the last one. And there are things remaining from the first induction 
like amnesia etc yes that, like, yes they'll be operating screen memories you know are the famous thing uh oh yeah yeah like, no for know, sure so. for sure and and uh bane makes that point uh, elsewhere throughout the book at basically how there's a lot that candy jones did in her work for dr jensen that she just can't recover and he says that you know the studies in hypnosis and everything have proven that <clears throat> basically triggering amnesia you know especially if you're doing it in a very careful kind of um uh you know methodical way and of course like we did mention it or it was mentioned by arlene in the interview the vitamin shots that jensen would always give her which it turned out later on were like an entire cocktail of things um including thorazine and also and a soviet drug that i guess was kind of like an anti-psychotic or a sedative that they were also testing on her perhaps to gauge the effectiveness of like Soviet drugs or seeing like what kind of results they could get out of it. She probably was also dosed with LSD um, and also things such as scopolamine and belladonna. And that jumped out at me as well because belladonna was something there's like a very obscure. It's kind of one of the better. If you're going to watch anything on the Manson family, there was like a very creepy, I don't know, 1972 documentary about the manson family like after charles manson went to jail but just focusing on like the the mostly the girls that were still free but you know were very unrepentant and i remember they told some like really insane like maniacal stories about like psychedelic sex rituals and like sacrificing people and i remember squeaky from specifically talking about how they were you know obviously they're taking lsd but they were taking a lot of belladonna is what she said and Mm. um and i noticed that here because uh when they were in one of these chapters about drugging her in oakland uh bain wrote as i write this book in the summer of 1975 the nation's leading newspapers and television programs daily report new revelations with regard to government testing of behavior modifying drugs it was not only the cia that experimented on innocent and unknowing persons the army according to published reports has been testing such substances as lsd atropine and scopolamine since the early 1950s and continues to do so atropine is a natural extract of belladonna plants and is a well-known poison scopolamine is a depressant both drugs are used medically for motion sickness muscle relaxation sedation and amnesia to childbirth and for a host of other therapeutic strategies given in large doses both drugs can cause hallucinations the army claims to have ceased experimentation with lsd in 1967 Hmm, just in time for the summer of love Uh, but admits that the 535 servicemen and civilians giving lsd during an eight-year testing program had not been informed that they were receiving the drug. In all, over 2,000 human subjects were tested under this project, and the Army currently awaits approval from the Surgeon General's Office to mount new tests. And it was also revealed in 75 that the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare had tested LSD on 2,500 prisoners, mental patients, and paid volunteers since 1954. HEW claims that all subjects gave their prior consent, although one wonders how mental patients could legally give such approval. It was also pointed out that in addition to HEW's direct testing programs, millions of dollars had been granted to more than 30 university researchers for additional testing of lsd on human subjects primarily college students (laughs) so uh yeah so you know belladonna is i guess like a very like scary psychedelic it almost sounds like stp 
you know, like like a bad acid or something. And that's right. what like Manson had a huge supply of Belladonna for some reason and was giving it out all the time. So that jumps out as a little bit like, mm, I don't know, weirdly sophisticated for this, you know, ex-con hippie whatever guy you know the, the you know that that gets into a whole thing but um you know they were trying out all kinds of things and who knows what they were giving candy jones uh though bane also makes the point worth noting that i guess according to most of the hypnotists he spoke to that it's actually ideal to put somebody into a hypnotic trance without drugs but it's more yeah, well, that's what erickson sort of had said yeah yeah um, yeah basically that I, I like you could achieve yeah you can achieve um, a deeper hypnosis but like if you need it in a pinch it does help uh she also mentioned in one of her trances being injected with sodium am, uh sodium uh pentothal and sodium amytal which are you know like the truth serum drugs basically that uh you could give to people which i guess also can help induce a uh a hypnotic trance especially if somebody is resistant is very resistant to the idea of kind of getting involved it's sort of a it's like a hack it's not perfect you know and maybe you won't get as deep of a you know hypnotic trance or it won't stick as much uh as if they're kind of just fully sober but you know brought into it naturally but yeah so i mean they were they were experimenting on her basically and i mean even a lot a lot of her things that she ended up doing at first, Donald Bain seems to think that they weren't even necessarily real missions at first, but in fact, they, they were like tests, you know? I mean, she wasn't told they were tests, but he, you know, probably the envelopes she had to go deliver pro- perhaps were not of, you know, a very top secret quality at first. You know, he was trying to see, could I get her just to do this at first? And then when she performed that well, then he started to send her on missions abroad, starting in Donald Bain isn't Candy Jones wasn't sure. But uh, Donald Bain thinks it was in 1966 when she made her first overseas trip to Taiwan. Well, yeah, concerning like those things and also like her trip, you know, there's always the possibility like, you know, in the same way that some of these things or if they were like sort of test missions like maybe they were but one wonders like you know how many of them were like you know a test of her ability to imagine these things like in her mind or something you know there's like all sorts of like possibilities like uh the taiwan experience also i wonder about that as well but we should go yeah. into like what actually she recalls happening exactly um, yeah that's really yeah. fascinating and uh and because she ends up she goes several times and it's pretty simple the first time um so she you know she gets jensen instructs her to go and i believe she she does mention before uh going to the foreign travels uh that i guess donald bain wanted to include which is kind of interesting where nebel asked her about her new york social life and if she went to cocktail parties and she said i go to screenings that's all and she said oh but i went to that cocktail party just like he told me to and he said which party was that she said the party at 21 bill buckley's that's william f buckley uh cia agent skull and bones man you know uh, firing line host and uh you know she, uh, he said uh why did you go to that one who told you to go 
You did, she replied, annoyed that he'd forgotten. I had the picture taken. Nebel paused to collect his thoughts, because Nebel is playing Jensen right now. What happened to the picture? Candy was even more annoyed at his question about the picture. I brought it to you. You've got it. Why did I want the picture, asked Nebel, still in the role of Gilbert Jensen. I don't know. I don't know anything. Nebel was at a loss for a moment. Finally, he asked, did Bill Buckley treat you nicely? Yes, Candy answered with a pleased chuckle. Very nicely. He's a very nice... That man came in and insulted him, just like you said he would. It was... Wow, I couldn't believe it. What happened? That man... Tell me about it again. Let's see if you remember. The man insulted him? He came right over. He's standing to the right of me in the picture. He called Buckley names. He told him what a fink he was, but he used bad words. Nebel asked, who did that? Candy didn't respond. Who, did you, who do you think that man was? Nebel asked. Candy made a series of sucking sounds before answering... I don't know. You know who he is. I don't know him. I never saw him before. It's right there in the picture, out on your desk. What did the man do then? He left. No further information on the scene was gathered through subsequent uh, hypnotic sessions, most likely because what Candy reported to Jensen during that regression was the extent of her knowledge. Um, and the, yeah, so that's weird that she was like sent to like a William F. Buckley party, and then some guy came in and just started like insulting him, and then he left, but like she knew he was going to do that. It's just like very odd. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> very yeah. odd. And, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, after that, she gets sent to go to Taiwan, uh, which Bane says turned out to be terrifying for Candy, although it was Arlene who functioned on them as company representative. And it was Arlene who bore the brunt of the resulting physical and mental anguish. And so she went there, and I guess she met with a, a Taiwanese contact. Uh, who's under another well they don't actually really know his name but they're calling him chin chen and he met her at the airport uh she offered to hand him the envelope that she was carrying but he insisted that she accompany him to his home she was wary but went with him and they went to like a palatial kind of country estate and with like uh servants everywhere and uh, including two young chinese women dressed in white laboratory frocks uh, who Chen said were the household help. And, you know, they basically, they hung out for three days. They went sightseeing. They, you know, had big dinners. They had like a, like a farewell party on the last night. And she came back and it was great. And, you know, she flew with, as Arlene Grant, uh, Jensen would give her a black wig, dark makeup, and, you know, kind of a different outfit. And he had a passport for her that she carried with her so she could you know which presumably the cia would have hooked up so she had this kind of fake her altar had a real passport she could travel with and you know it was uh it, it seemed to be fine but then so then she went again and it was like the exact thing she went to jensen's office in oakland got an intra intravenous feeding of his alleged vitamins and came out as Arlene Grant, flew to Taiwan, met Mr. Chen. He, they drove to his country home, and Arlene became his house guest for a second time. This time, however, Chen, the host, became Chen, the torturer. Um, and it's, like, a little bit unclear exactly what happened, but what is certain is that Arlene was detained by Chen for at least two days, 
possibly three, during which time he and, associate, he and his, his associates attempted to extract information from her by various methods of physical torture. What was it that they felt Arlene knew or possessed is unknown, but it was apparently valuable enough for them to use torture in an attempt to get it. She'd handed over the envelope to Chen as instructed, and every hypnotic tape dealing with his experience contains repeated denials of having any of the information asked for by Arlene's torturer. Um, and... Yeah, I guess they, they relive this in December 1974 in a hypnotic session. She described being electroshocked by she had wires attached to her. She says, you've got that thing strapped to me. Um, Nebel asked her to describe that thing. She told him it was a small box on the table from which wires led to her wrist and to her shoulder. Nebel offered to remove the wires from her and placed his hand on her left wrist. She informed him that the wire was attached to the opposite wrist. He eventually followed her instructions and removed all the imaginary wires from her body, as well as the tape that had held them to her skin. The removal of the tape was felt by her, and she reacted when the adhesive was stripped away. That hurt awful, Candy said, rubbing the spots of the wires had been. Uh, John said, I don't know who told anybody to do that to you. You did, she responded, annoyed. You told her, and I don't know anything. Nobody here believes me. So, yeah, basically, she relived this experience. It was very upsetting, and uh, I guess there were further details of the torture. So, uh, what by... role? So, I guess was uh, Long John taking on the role of Chen in that? Scenario, uh, he must have been. Yeah, he was taking on. He was yeah. taking on the role of Chen. Yeah, exactly. So she's saying, "You did this to me," and so. Yeah, when they did this again, she got a little more specific about it. And, you know, basically mm -hmm. she described what was happening to her. She said they put a solution first on the skin. He asked the saline solution. She said, I don't know, a solution. They put it on with gauze and a long stick, like a Q-tip. They stuck a wire on the wet area. She pointed to various parts of her body, including her breasts. Nebel asked whether they'd ever attached the wires there. And she replied that they had threatened to place the electrodes on her breasts if she didn't cooperate. Uh, Candy says, they put the wire on your finger and, wait a minute, let's take it step by step. Do they wrap the wire around your finger? No, they just touch it to the area where the solution is. Is the current on? Of course. And the wire is attached to a box? Yes, like a manicure set or an electric hair roller, a little box with a few dials on it. And there are two little wires and they touch them. They don't touch the two wires to you, do they? Oh, yes, they do. They touch both wires. Did it spark? I didn't look, but I heard it. It hisses and it hurts momentarily it's a shock it makes a blister and then they stop it yeah what did you do with the blisters i opened them myself with a sterilized needle how many blisters were there let me see there was one here and john observing her wait a minute that's the right hand fourth finger yeah that was a big one she also pointed to the little finger of her right hand and indicated the blister had run all the way down the little finger to the palm and that her right thumb had also been badly blistered from the electrodes they like to get to your joints or to your fingernail or to your fingernail because that's more painful. And this is a little passage uh, that really jumped out at me right after this because there, it reminded me of Salem and some of the mm -hmm. Soviet parapsychology stuff. But mm -hmm. okay, get a load of this. At that point, there is a discussion between John and Candy about the fingers on her right hand and about the fact that there were physical signs on them of actual blisters. 
This phenomenon, usually termed memory tissue in the field of parapsychology, was discussed during the preparation of this book and is one of its more bizarre and debatable aspects. Research over the years has shown that a good hypnotic subject is sometimes capable of exhibiting so-called memory tissue when regressed to a point in time when a physically traumatic experience took place. An example might be a child burning his or her hand at the age of five. When the child has reached adulthood, all traces of the burn have disappeared. But it is possible, say some researchers, to raise the same blister on the same hand during hypnotic regression many years later. Dr. Robert London, when asked on The Nebel Show whether he could accept the theory of memory tissue, replied, quote, I'm in conflict. From a scientific point of view, I would have great difficulty believing that I could see blisters in a hypnotic subject or to believe that blisters could occur. The blisters are there for a reason when you are truly burned. Yet, there is another part of me which says, which would lead me to give potential credibility to the theory of memory tissue. There is a memory bank in cells. Nebel brought up the fact that a good hypnotic subject will drop a cold object if told by the hypnotist that it is, in fact, red hot because he has accepted that suggestion while in the trance state. Dr. London agreed with this and then went on to elaborate on his statement that cells have a memory. Citing the field of immunization, he commented that researchers are pointing in the direction of recognizing that body cells do have a memory system of sorts and that immunity might be linked in some way to the system. The question of whether the body is capable of reproducing physiological symptoms through hypnotic regression will be debated for many years to come. Research is always open to question, and the myriad variables inherent in hypnotic research further complicate the problem. I recently interviewed a New York neurologist, Dr. Kenneth Jordan, Assistant Chief of Neurology at Staten Island Public Health Hospital. We discussed the theory of engrams, theoretical memory structures created at the time a new piece of information is learned. I asked Dr. Jordan his feelings about the possibility of memory tissue manifesting itself as reported by Candy. First of all, Jordan said, a more apt term would be memory tracings, and a reasonable inference would be that because of the tremendous effective input uh, surrounding the real physical input, these engrams, uh, these components of memory tracing, have not developed the same inhibitory components that less traumatic experiences have developed. They thus continuously remain more accessible to conscious recall. It may take only a small clue, an experience that is faintly similar to the previous experience, to eliminate the remaining tenuous inhibitory pathways and to allow the memory not only to come forward, but to rush forward with a vengeance. We also know the temporal lobe of the brain is intimately connected with the autonomic nervous system. This is part of the nervous system which controls blood pressure, intestinal emotion, muscle tone, etc. It is conceivable, but by no means proved, that at least anatomically and, and, and physiologically, the same area of the brain that is involved in the vengeful recall of the initial traumatic experience can, without too much difficulty, be simultaneously involved with the autonomic, involuntary physical phenomenon going on with the same person. And uh, Bain says, I have personally been present in the Neville apartment when memory tissue seemed to display itself in candy. On this day, the memory tissue involved concerned the area in the crook of her arm in which Gilbert Jensen had injected the IV. After Neville brought candy out of the trance state, we closely examined her arm. There appeared to be a distension of the vein as well as a mark that could have been made by a needle. Whether I saw these things because I wanted to see them is a question I cannot answer. I accepted what I believed I saw and report it here. So yeah, and so did you ever uh, did yeah. you ever play that game uh, Cat Scratch or Cat Scratches? Uh, like, was uh, that like a little playground game? Kind of. It's more of like a sleepover game, like light as a feather, surface as a board, uh, yeah. type thing. Okay. Uh, basically, it's kind of like hi- like a hypnosis in a way, 
because uh, you basically like tell there's multiple versions of it obviously like there are of all these games but basically you tell a long story about like uh you know and you tell it there's like one person who's like the subject as it were and uh you tell the story as if it's about the person like you insert you know the person's name into the story as like the protagonist and basically Mm -hmm. you tell this long story um while kind of like a lightly like uh you know and it's basically about being attacked by like a mob or like a giant scary cat um Mm. like a mob of like you know cats or one big giant scary cat and uh you know you sort of repeat like the phrase like cat scratches like cat scratches cat scratches and like as you're saying that you kind of like very lightly like stroke your hands on the person's back Mm -hmm. um you know like uh i didn't like you know ever experience this i feel like maybe you know maybe it's in that sort of like uh you know uh feminine uh tradition because i didn't experience this until Mm. like you know, I had my first girlfriend in like eighth grade, you know, and she mentioned uh-huh. to me, and I was like, what is that? You know, so maybe it's in the, <laughs> the lineage of like witchery going all the way back to Salem. But, uh-huh. um, yeah. you know, uh, but basically, you know, you uh, run your hands like lightly on the person's back. And then like uh, if you pull up like their shirt, like you'll see like these scratches like that. They're, you know, uh, and it works. So you, I don't you, know. Like, you put uh, your you put your hands down like you don't scratch your fingernails on their back. You don't you actually put... scratch. Yeah, no, you sort of like just lightly run them. Wow. And like the scratches will actually appear. Uh, that like, is, you know, yeah. It, it so works. again, the the power uh, of the mind. This is like pretty. That yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a very interesting example. Um, Maybe there is some sort of mutual hypnosis happening where the person will perceive it because the expectation of the frame like could also uh be playing a role but i don't know like uh i was just remembering it as you were telling that story and i looked it up on reddit and i saw some wow. people being like you know what the hell like why does this work you know uh and i remembered it being something that you know it definitely was uh you know because it is kind of this sort of hip yeah yeah type thing uh in a way because it's like this long sort of discursive it's, it's like another like one of those like let me you know? tell you let me do like a, um, a roundabout way of like component. hypnotizing you through a kind of like a story format you know sort of like this narrative device yeah. of like let me tell you we're gonna play ga- and, and like a game like we're gonna play a game you know i wonder yeah like like so many kids games could involve like casual kind of like hypnotic elements without well, people really consciously really board is another one that's yeah like yeah it is you know let us know if it's a board like you repeat it over and over like and that's sort of how it's supposed to work um the collective yeah, will I mean, makes you light as a feather yeah and skip to the board yeah i actually yeah, exactly. just uh purchased for uh 99 cents on kindle uh william joseph Bryan jr md's book uh religious aspects of hypnosis uh, oh okay which, uh, i mean yes that has, sounds like a whole uh, episode right there yeah um right he has a chapter uh the evidence of jesus using hypnosis to heal and uh the hypnotic proof of god um it, you know uh yeah but like uh to him basically like hypnosis is yeah kind of what you're talking about like uh mind over matter type thing you know he quotes Sydney uh van pelt who is like i think a swedish like hypnosis or a hypnotist or something like that i, I want to say mm-hmm. swedish uh Sydney van pelt i look him up but uh yeah uh he mm. was an uh australian all right i don't know where i got oh swedish god they from. are uh, they are all up in that business of mk ultra kind of stuff yeah. in australia all the five eyes countries were you know neck deep in it but australia 
was as well, including I think yes, maybe the Colquhoun's father. Commander in the Royal Navy, obviously, uh, yeah. and he worked at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. But anyway, yeah. So uh, he has a whole long quote from him about uh, various things, uh, just talking about how uh, you know, um, in many cases, uh, where one old person dies, the companion has lost the all will to live and dies shortly thereafter. Um, it is well known that a native will sicken and die of no clinically demonstrable disease if he believes that the medicine man, or witch doctor, has put a curse on him. The native mm. simply hypnotizes himself into believing he will die, and so he does, you know. So, mm. at the very least, you know, this yeah. is what William Jennings, uh, what Joseph Bryan, uh, you know, was uh, saying was, uh, you know, uh, how hypnosis worked. Like, uh, he says that people who are old, like centenarians, people who live to 100 have hypnotized themselves into a strong desire to live and enjoy life. And so they influence their organs and glands. They work to maximum efficiency. So wow. that's like the kind of stuff that uh, his conception of hypnosis, you know, he basically thinks like we were kind of talking about before that prayer is a form of hypnosis. Actually, a, yeah, a like everything involves he, inducing trans yeah. states in yourself or others. Basically. Yeah. He, there's actually a, yeah, there's a funny part where he laments that like Muslim, uh, you know, uh, children, when they're praying to Muhammad or whatever, you know, like, uh, they like, uh, repeat like phrases and they do it like a couple times a day and they're like trained from very young to do this. And he's, uh, you know, upset about how Protestantism doesn't have this same mastery of, of hypnosis that, that the Muslims, you know, have, uh, <laughs> to get people to, to pray. But, uh, interesting. Uh, interesting. yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, yes, that's, uh, uh, yeah, the, there, and you know, yeah, I mean, even thinking about the, the very real phenomenon of if, if babies are not touched, they can die after they're born. Yeah, that would make sense. Like, if they're not held by a they person. They need to be socialized, yeah. Yeah, they need to be so, yeah, And it's like, it literally can kill them if, if they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so that, that that seems to be a thing that... It, it's hard to draw a straight phys- physiological line to, like, why would that kill a baby? But in a baby's consciousness, maybe they hypnotize themselves into, I don't know, being... It's so terrifying yeah, this guy basically to not be has touched like re- that they die. This guy basically has a reading of the Bible that, like, when Jesus would cure lepers, he would basically, and, like, when he would say things, like, when he would lay on hands and be like, you know, uh, like, uh, according to your faith, be it unto you, uh, and things like that, you know, uh, that would be, Which like, Which actually kind of, it puts, it puts the, know, it, it puts the context of, like, you know, faith is the most important thing in a kind of different light, that, you know, mm-hmm. it, he who believes in right. me, like, shall not taste death, or, you know, shall be healed, or whatever, and I guess if you believed in him, and then he hypnotized you, it worked. Well, what about, like, faith healers and things like that, you know? Uh, sure, we mean, still we have that today. In our previous episode about hypnosis, where people were like, if you're hypnotized, you will reach your hand into, like, rattlesnakes, like, the incredible power of hypnosis, but, like, you know, snake handlers, when they go into, like, these ecstatic trances, like, they obviously will handle dangerous snakes, and, like, people will experience speaking in tongues and things like that. Yeah, like, the walk-on hot them, coals. Like, they're not... You know, yeah, people are, yeah, tend to be like, oh, that's religious. They're just like saying gobbledygook. But if you, you know, sorry, that was a gobbledygook is a, uh, you know, a charged phrase, I feel like, especially, uh, <laughs> but, you know, nonsense or something. Uh, yeah, I apologize. We got a gobbledygooker. Uh, but uh, yeah, we got yeah. a gobbledygooker. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> He's won the heart of Hartford. But anyway, yeah. um, so. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, but yeah, well, some might say that we got ourselves a gobbledygooker. Uh, 
yeah, like you know, like, uh, they um, you know will say it's a, a real experience, or you know, faith healer actually like healing illnesses, that kind of stuff. You know, does happen. Yeah, I mean, it is mm-hmm. interesting, and like I think that even the substances they were experimenting with, like the uh, belladonna, you know, or scopolamine, those are kind of like uh, herbs that even have a sort of linear. Or those are chemicals that have some kind of lineage or association with like the occult, which I guess like a lot of these entheogens mm-hmm. do. But, yeah. uh, you know, that's kind of the nature of the yeah, experimentation. But other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in so far um, as I don't know, like, to what extent that was sort of in the air at the time. Like, and but from that, like, you know, that is kind of a like a credible uh, story, you know, and also even the whole idea of using hypnosis to sort of hone parapsychological or sort of ESP type abilities. That was definitely something that, you know, as we talked about in our Erickson Estabrooks episode, um, that was something that was very much like believed to be associated with hypnosis, like the power of remote viewing, stuff like that. I think that that mm-hmm. even where there were some cases like in the popular press where the discussion of hypnosis, um, you know, and the association with being hypnotized and being able to perform telepathy or something like that would yes. be out there. You know? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. You bill your show as the art of um, conversation. Lively art. Lively art of conversation. Meaningful conversation. We hope so. At best, what can shows like those that we all do, either on radio, television, or PBS or NBC, at best, what can we do for people? I think we have three motives, at least I do personally. One, I try to educate people and try to give them some information that they may not get elsewhere. Two, I try to stimulate the art of conversation. I think we're losing that art in our country. Too many people sit and stare at that TV show. They don't talk. And I think our shows demonstrate what good conversation can do. So first, we're giving them some controversial issues, exploring them. Two, we're trying to teach them what conversation can do. And three, we try to entertain them. We have some light shows. We have a lot of entertainers on the show. We try to be humorous at times. And I think if you supply those three objectives, you're doing a pretty good job in the talk show. I sometimes wonder if in mind, and I put myself in, the, in that same category, if we are if we all are not just serving as uh, plugging mechanisms for books, plays, uh, nightclub acts, uh, TV specials, whether we're really doing anything that's helping people or, as you say, educating them or entertaining them, or if we're not just all listening to our egos ticking. I think it's the way the host handles the show, Tom. It has a lot to do with the thing. If you have a book on the show and you've read the book and you can explore some of the salient features, something that is meaningful, you've contributed something to the audience. If you just let the author ramble on about how great the book is, then we're, we're being used, and I think all of us hate to be used. I find that uh, until... Is Candy allowed to speak now for a minute, Jim? Oh, I, I apologize <laughs> to you. What was the name again? Schneider? <laughs> Schneider? Uh, in books, uh, generally, we try to avoid fiction, uh, nonfiction, and I think that we hit upon uh, matters of great importance in the country. Politic, medicine, uh, unemployment, uh, uh, all sorts of things in areas where people are seem to be concerned. And again, as uh, Cup said, the art of conversation. And it is something that people can learn. And from the calls, you have calls in? No, you no, don't have call-ins. Uh, we have call-ins, as you know. And uh, it does seem to stimulate the ability to talk and to have, I use that word again, a meaningful type of conversation. I'm often asked, who's watching at 1 o'clock in the morning? Who's listening at 4 o'clock in the morning, John? Well, as soon as we announced 
our phone number, uh, there are five lines. They all light up. We have a metering system. We have had, at 4 o'clock in the morning, as many as 9,000 calls. Now, we didn't take those calls. No. Right. But uh, the fact is, there are people up all hours of the night, and of course, we do cover a larger area than just New York City. We cover New England states. Before we move on completely from the Taiwan scene, I just wanted to mention how it ended up, because it's kind of interesting. Um, so... After a few days of being tortured, according to Candy, the torture stopped only after Chen spoke with someone on the phone. Following the conversation, they released her from the chair in which she was strapped and became very friendly and apologetic. They told her the electrodes were not to torture her, but to help jog her memory in a scientific way. They insisted that she stay for lunch, which she did, and they drove her to the airport that night. She says, I wore gloves on the flight to California because my hand looked so terrible, and there was a smell from my fingers like sulfuric acid. Gilbert Jensen met her plane and took her to his office, where he gave her an injection. It was all a mistake, Jensen told her. A typographical error. Candy assumed he meant that a word in the message was wrong, and had led the Chinese man and woman to assume that she knew more than she was acknowledging. These conscious thoughts have come to Candy only in the very recent past. When she left Jensen's office that day and returned to New York, she literally had no memory of what happened uh, on Taiwan. And then he mentions in the next chapter, because I was certainly thinking it, about this whole experience. Um, mm -hmm. There's one theory I would like to introduce, however, before proceeding with the tape transcripts covering Candy's subsequent trips to Taiwan. The possibility has occurred to me that Mr. Chen and the others involved in torturing Candy Jones might well have been employees of our own Central Intelligence Agency. I do not have any tangible evidence that this was the case, but the thesis nags at me as I deal with the material. After all, the value of Candy's and Arlene's messenger services to America and to the CIA must be questioned. To have put her through such nightmarish ordeals for the sole purpose of having an envelope delivered challenges my imagination, or at best causes me to view with an incredulous eye those making such decisions. Therefore, I have asked myself if it is possible that the torture of Candy Jones on Taiwan was another aspect of the testing program instituted by Gilbert Jensen. Putting her to the test, as it were, would have given tangible proof to Jensen and to his superiors that the so-called perfect messenger could be created through drugs and hypnosis. Such a test would have been of dubious value had Candy known ahead of time that she was to be tested, but sending her on what appeared on the surface to be legitimate and useful messenger runs and having her intercepted and tortured would, it seems to me, have constituted a test that would satisfy the most demanding of scientists. If she broke under the mental and physical pressure, Jensen and his colleagues would know the experiment had failed. But a favorable report from Chen would be a reason for rejoicing in Oakland and in Langley, Virginia, the home of the CIA and its science and technology directorate. And... Yeah, so, like, I would generally, uh, it sounds like that is probably the case. Um, you know, he also yeah, just says... kind of it's what a, definitely uh, was a, definitely a possibility that occurred to me. Uh, yeah, uh, Martin Cannon, I think, even took it a step further and said that, like, the whole thing was potentially, like, in her mind uh even like uh hmm. let me see if i can find the footnotes where he uh suggested this yeah in interviews uh one of mark's informants that is john marks the guy uh the author of uh search for the adventure in candidate uh 
uh, one of his informants offered the interesting speculation that Candy's torture sessions were not connected in the field, but in the lab. Her entire mission might have been a hypno-program fantasy. Uh, hmm. So I guess that was one of his informants suggested that, but, you know. Interesting. Uh, I think that, yeah. Um, it, well, you know, one, you know. Yeah, and another yeah. potential wrinkle, because there's so many ways you could, you know, there, there's so many potential layers to this. Um, uh, Bane says that another aspect of the Taiwan adventures that causes him to question Chen's actions is the use of electrodes. Electrodes have long been standard device used to test pain tolerance in hypnotic subjects. As reported by Dr. G.H. Estabrooks in his book Hypnotism, a device known as the Variac is plugged into a light socket, its leads placed on the subject's hands, a saline solution is used to establish the best possible contact, and according to Estabrooks, 15 volts of current would be very painful, 20 unbearable, but a good hypnotic subject in deep trance uh, could withstand 60 or even 120 volts without flinching. And, oh, yeah. you know, that that makes me even think, like, what if they earlier. were... Yeah, he like, wanted to use this as a test. Yeah, exactly. Testing how deeply hypnotized she was. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like, what if they but were... Although, not not yeah. to not to erase, like, that, you know, she experienced something very painful and traumatic, but I guess according to the, the theories that we've... that were mentioned earlier in this book, there, there almost is no practical difference between thinking you're being electrocuted when you're under hypnosis and actually being electrocuted. It still causes um, pain. Yeah, you well, know? Aston uh, Brooks actually wanted to use... I don't know if this was the situation that she described it, but Esther Brooks like, wanted to use that to like test how deep someone's trance was. Mm-hmm. You know, like actually electrocute them. So, you know, that uh, could have been part of it maybe i don't know like miss you know i uh, remembered in some sort of uh you know different way maybe uh through like some layers of uh being recollected years later i don't mm-hmm. know but yeah, uh, yeah yeah well yeah yeah bane seems to think that it would have been a great boon for jensen to have other people test the extent of candy jones you know hypnotic state uh because you know it'd be mm-hmm. one thing for him to do it but he's kind of her her controller so it might you know not be as impressive to get her to withstand a bunch of things under him but to get this mr chen and a bunch of people halfway around the world to do it uh regardless of whether or not she was you know in it does seem like she did travel uh some of her friends have mentioned that she would disappear for long periods of time i mean who knows maybe they took her to some underground you know bunker and told her yeah you know, what i mean i don't know it like it, yeah, they maybe. would outsource that type of thing to someone in taiwan i mean i know obviously like well and not necessarily taiwan, not necessarily like, why not, not you know not necessarily yeah. because uh as bane notes that the fact that this took place in taiwan comes as no surprise because taiwan has been and continues to be a hotbed of cia activity has been reported by various former cia agents now authors that taiwan has more foreign intelligence operatives than any other nation in the world it would also follow that being california based jensen's contacts would be in the far east and it also makes you think about that whole network of like china hands you know that like ray klein and uh edward lansdale who was in the philippines let's not forget in 1945 running around looking for yamashita's gold right like there was a lot going on in Philippines in the 1945, uh, and yeah, a lot of I mean, operatives sure, swirling around, I, and of course the Kuomintang. True. Like Taiwan is just like a vassal state of the of the Kuomintang, the you know the right wing uh, nationalists that were backed by the CIA, and so it was basically 
a U.S. outpost yeah. as far as intelligence oh, is concerned. Sure. So that but doesn't surprise is... me too much at all. Yeah. I mean, no, it's not. Well, also, if you wanted to, if you wanted to weaponize like, this and operationalize yeah, it, like, you know, you're going to have to send people overseas eventually. So deniability maybe in doing it. But yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, no, I, I, I think that because she was sent to a few different places abroad and you would want to test that at a certain point, like when you're outside of a familiar environment. And now, of course, like this was not a hostile country in any ways. So. The idea that these yeah. people Although, would yeah, have been sure torturing a CIA asset, like, yeah, like why? Why would they be, be doing it? It would be very unfamiliar. You know, it would be abroad, so it would be disorienting. So that might be helpful as well, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Taiwan. That's yeah, thing, so you know, I, I would lean towards these people were part of the experiment to test how well, you know, she could function in a more operational setting basically you know it was an escalation from just sending her to like st louis or chicago or something like that and uh and it was it was yeah. the very thing that like hypnosis the number one thing they claimed was the benefit of like hypnotizing spies and couriers Honestly, is that when tortured they will not be able to give up any information or break their trance yeah honestly my take though like would be that I'm not necessarily, like, again, like, yeah, like, there's maybe, like, certain advantages to having her be, like, sort of a, a housewife and, like, pinup model, like, uh, and maybe there's some sort of, like, espionage aspect to, like, her marriage to this guy, John Neville, who's, like, kind of uh, a outlet for a lot of, like, uh, skepticism of, like, the government or, you know, uh, possible, like, uh, mm. you know, uh, unwanted knowledge or uh you know contraband uh, information in some way yeah so yeah some that, aspect of that but that is interesting to me, like the super spy stuff like that's what i find to be like maybe i find it more likely that she was like you know experimented upon like in some way maybe the spy stuff is like i don't know uh, I mean, like, yeah, I'm well, more skeptical of that. Like, well, no, know. and, and it's, it's to, a, a to be clear, world, but yeah, you know, the, to be yeah. clear, like, uh, like Bane is not and neither is John Nebel or Candy Jones, like making any very specific claims about types of operations that she was involved in. Like, according to her, she really has no memory of that because it was programmatically wiped out you know, and it, mm -hmm. through induced amnesia by Jensen. And I kind of feel like that's a little bit less important, whatever they actually did get her to do, because the real value I think of them getting control over Candy Jones was to test just if you could, this is like a concept, like this is a prototype, right? Like this is, can we do this to somebody and get to and basically enlist them in a way? And if you think about it, then the ramifications of this perhaps were maybe people like Sirhan Sirhan, who, you know, some have alleged uh, that, you know, uh, a William J. Bryan uh, hypno program to, you know, shoot blanks at Bobby Kennedy and, you know, other things and, and all kinds of other uses. Right. I mean, even going into total like vigilant citizen territory of like the biggest pop stars are all going to have like a hypnotherapist that like secretly like, controls them or something so that they don't go off the reservation or things things like that. Um, I think that really it sounds like the the whole extent of most of the extent of her activities 
was not that she was actually this super spy that like did a bunch of things kind of like you know confessions of a dangerous mind which kind of makes me wonder if that guy was ever hypnotized you know uh chuck barris mm-hmm. who was you know the gong right. show host who was like flying around assassinating people i mean in his case he claimed to be fully conscious of all this and you know made a bunch of very specific claims about you know murdering people all around the world but candy jones mm-hmm. doesn't really make any big things besides like i went to deliver something to somebody and i have a blank spot in my memory and i don't know what i did and so I think right. like that's pretty much uh, they weren't able to access that part through hypnotic regression. So it leads me to believe that this was really kind of an, an experimental program to see how well could you do this to somebody and even taking like a celebrity and doing it like a prominent kind of figure and getting them. You know, basically, uh, you know, uh, Bain cited earlier in the book uh, the thing that we talked about in Estabrook's episode, the whole personality A, personality B, inducing multiple personalities through hypnosis mm-hmm. and how, you know, personality A would be, a, a, you know, a steadfast communist, but personality B would be a right wing, you know, anti-communist, uh, but but B would have access to all of the experiences and memories of A and A wouldn't know that B existed. And so that, you know, it seems like, that is something that maybe they tried on Candy Jones, uh, and it was easy for them to do because she already had this pre-existing personality kind of latent inside of her. Uh, that yeah, it seemed like she would be referring to it as something that existed, like since childhood. Yeah, at least in her sort of descriptions, it seems like Sorry. she would be talking about it as something that had been there from her youth. You know, uh, so. Maybe it was developed, possibly, but... Yeah, and it does make uh, you think even about the later monarch rumors where they, by the 80s, according to some allegations, they realized, oh, you have to influence children when they're very young, and then you get a much... you you, Then maybe you can uh, exacerbate hypnotic suggestibility in them mm -hmm. if you start doing certain things. Certainly, like if you... Yeah, I mean, if you condition someone from childhood, people are very impressionable when they're children, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that having like that sort of relationship with authority, that kind of abusive relationship with authority that she had with her parents like that Mm -hmm. was in a way of kind of conditioning that like if this, you know, uh, that one could easily drop into the role of uh, in a different dynamic, you know Yeah um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, uh, so, you know, that after all those missions, I think that leads us to kind of what, the sort of the climactic event that she was able to recall. And that was when she started being taken to the farm, the CIA, you know, training center uh, right outside of Washington, D.C., and started receiving kind of paramilitary and spy training in a variety of ways. And... I guess she went a number of times to not just the farm, but also to various Air Force bases. She also recalled having been to the paramilitary base in the Everglades where the the anti-Castro Cubans in the Bay of Pigs operation had been trained. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we're probably talking about a little overlap with like the kind of networks here, especially it's interesting that she started all this in 1960, which would have been like right as the Bay of Pigs, I mean, yeah, like right before the Bay of Pigs happened 
and then throughout the entire 60s with all these assassinations and things of that nature and uh, yeah i see yeah she trained at the now infamous florida center from which the invasion of cuba the bay of pigs was choreographed um and actually interestingly that same florida training facility was also used to prepare for the surprise parachute drop into the north vietnamese prison camp of son toy in november 1970 the mission was a failure for there were no american prisoners in the camp at the time of the raid and this is kind of interesting in terms of her later quote-unquote operations candy claims to have almost played a role in that mission it was arranged for her to lead a uso troop to vietnam just prior to the attack while in south vietnam she was to feign illness and leave the troop and was to be transported by military helicopter to the north vietnamese border where she would deliver a message to an unidentified man the uso tour was canceled at the last minute and it is candy's assumption that a leak originating at the highest level of the uso not only caused the tour to be canceled but was responsible for the north vietnamese evacuation of american prisoners from son toy only days before the attack on the prison camp um so that's a little weird i don't know what her contribution to that operation would have been but (laughs) it seems like it would have been mostly like delivering a message which you know would make more sense for like her you know type of of role and being a courier you know that would be it would be valuable for someone to have their memories erased you know if uh, yeah yeah, for highly uh, sensitive, um, compartmentalized information. And yeah. so, you know, there was that, but then but then there was one time that she eventually recalled, which is one of the more upsetting memories that she had and kind of is like the capstone of the book. And a little content warning here is pretty kind of disturbing and fucked up. Uh, but basically, they took... Jensen had her fly out to Virginia to go to like the farm and then i guess you know either a facility at the farm or at ca headquarters and he brought her into a room that was like one of those medical observation rooms where there's like a surgery table and then there's like a a gallery above it you know Mm -hmm. where people sit down and watch and so basically nebel's bringing her back and she's finally recounting this memory and she's talking about nurses pushing her down and she's like struggling in the bed he says where are you now she says virginia he says at the big place meaning cia headquarters candy had referred to the langley facility as the big place at a few occasions in the past Uh uh-huh candy replied she sounded weary almost drugged um why did the nurses push you down i don't know i don't think they even knew who i was was gil jensen there Uh uh-huh dr jensen yes and let's see uh nebel probed uh and she told him she'd been present at a meeting at which jensen displayed her to his colleagues there were eight subjects on the program and jensen scheduled candy first being first is worse than being number eight she moaned further questioning by nebel brought the following comment from candy quote gill said that there were those people in the room who could stand up and make all sorts of accusations but if they were loyal americans their comments would be very valuable and would contribute to the case histories. Neville asked Candy if she had spoken to the group, and she said she had. What did you say? He asked her. I told them they were all phonies, hoodwinkers. You told them that? Uh-huh. And I told them not to be taken in by all of this. What did they do when you told them this? They applauded all of a sudden. It was funny. Did Jensen take a bow? No. Was he pleased with what you'd said? No. He asked me what I was trying to pull. I asked him who all the people were and what he was trying to pull. He had people all over the place. How many people were there? About 24. Neville asked the purpose of her being there. Was he trying to prove what a success he was? Yeah, I think he was. Trying to prove it? I think he was successful. 
What name did he use for you and when he introduced you? Candy fumbled for a name as she tried to recall the incident. Finally, she said, something like Laura Quidnick, something like that, Laura something. Did you have on a wig? Uh-huh. Which one? The black one. Neville questioned her in an attempt to learn whether Jensen had done anything prior to introducing her to the group that might have acted to induce a hypnotic trance. He asked whether Jensen used his hands or held a watch on a chain or lighted a candle. A candle, Candy said. He held it down, low, very low. Her voice began to display anxiety. Did he light the candle? Yes. She was at the verge of tears as she recalled this moment from her fast. He lighted it in front of the people? Yes. I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything. What did Jensen say to you when the candle was lit? He asked me questions. I don't know. I don't. Nebel reinforced the trance at this point. As he did, uh, Candy began to moan. She said, he tried to put the candle. He tried to. Uh, she began to cry. And uh, basically, they go back and forth on this. And, and Nebel has to, like, like, go really hard on the hypnosis and, like, demand that she tell him and... Uh, basically, he, he placed the candle, um, like, in her vagina, basically, in front of all these people, and, um, uh-huh. and I, I guess displayed no pain, and that, that was the point of this demonstration, and I guess in a later session, you know, basically, Arlene discussed the candle incident in a session with Neville recorded on July 6, 1974. She said that some of the doctors at the seminar had tried to break through Jensen's control of Candy, but had failed, much to Jensen's satisfaction. Candy is perfect, Arlene told Neville. Jensen proved in Virginia how impossible it was to break his control. So, yeah, I guess he... Yeah, he he brought all these CIA guys in and then did that to basically prove. uh, But, you know, little disturbing factoid in there. She was the first of eight that were going to be demonstrated. I mean, highly like odd to do that. Like, as we talked about, you know, there was the established thing of like electrocuting the person or like, you know, there's many other things that would occur to someone so it seems like, yeah, relatedly well, to that, you had a note here about, like, an upsetting and worrisome panic, pattern of satanic behavior on the part of Dr. Jensen. Uh, yeah, yeah. That almost that, seems like some kind of, like, ritual thing more than... That's what it would have to be. doesn't mm-hmm. seem, like, scientific. Like, it's very sadistic. Uh, it would have to be some kind of, you know, ritual well, purpose, you'd think. It right? makes like, you wonder... Yeah, the candle, and I guess a candle was, like, one of the main triggers for her Nebel said that at times there were certain restaurants or steakhouses they would go to in New York where if they had sort of low lit romantic flickering candles he'd like have to put a menu in front of it or something because sometimes it would start to pull her into a trance and she would turn into Arlene or you know just be in uh, candy in a trance but basically that was a thing so I don't know like yeah with candles incense that's a little bit kind of spiritually but could be could go either way you know it could be yeah 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 so it's a there's something a little bit yeah satanic feeling even though i think he's using it in the secular sense of just this guy has really bad motives he also did mention at the very end that she did eventually recall various times when he made various kinds of sexual advances on her which she always rejected even in a hypnotic trance and she postulated that that kind of pissed him off after a while 
that he basically so maybe this is like as kind of close he could get to you know it's it's very twisted but uh but in, and even arlene was not sexually interested in him at all and like refused any kind of advances he made so obviously this is like a well, minefield in terms of like consent and like violating boundaries there, well, like consent is outside out the window yeah, but yeah i mean well you would think like depending like even if like there was no pain i feel like john neville would be able to corroborate that story potentially depending on what actually she meant like because that would cause well yeah i mean yeah without getting too technical about it i don't know exactly what uh, yeah like if there's burn marks or something like that i i really it's it's definitely described in a way that it would have been incredibly painful like you're being burned and yeah i guess i don't know i mean it might have happened it might have been 10 years after it happened i i would i don't know other other uh hypnotism you know hypnotism specialists believe that something very bad happened to her as a res- you know during these incidents and it seems like i mean also maybe the idea of a flame is that it's kind of the proof is right there you know there's no trickery that could be involved if you're burning somebody with an open flame whereas if you hook them up to electrodes i don't know like even though this is all in the family it's all in the company but at the the same family like why would you yeah exactly but i mean but also like well maybe maybe we don't have to overthink it like he's proving that you can hold a candle up to any part of somebody's body and burn them and they'll just stand there like i mean what more do you need than that like that's you know it's like sadistic but that's like what he was going for and what he wanted to show off that i can i can make somebody even have this like superhuman strength kind of thing and as i said i think you know they're bringing in eight people this sounds like it's you know this is like a prototype this is an experimental project this isn't like we're gonna send her out behind enemy lines to like you know uh, kill people on the Ho Chi Minh Trail or something like assassinate a Soviet ambassador. But this is the kind of thing we ha- we have to work with now. Look at what we can do. That's a lot, though. Putting someone's hand in a fire, maybe that's kind of a prototypical thing. Maybe. Um, well, I, what's you know, the difference? Yeah, like what's the di- what? I mean, one is more painful, but like, what's the? You're inflicting extreme pain on somebody, and they're hypnotized and not reacting to it. It seems like it's just the same thing. Like, but it's a uh, well, but it's a huge like difference for like social reasons um like it's there's a huge like symbology to like yeah no i i agree but i don't think any of that like not be lost on anybody yeah but also like it it doesn't i don't see anything that makes me doubt this story basically is what i'm saying like i mean sure like there there could be it's interesting to speculate on kind of what the full you know intent was behind it or like why a candle was used versus something else, but I don't see any reason to doubt, given all the other information leading up to it, this seems perfectly natural. This guy was like a psychotic scientist who was abusing her and had, you know, hypnotized her uh, to be able to ignore extreme pain and, you know, basically either, you know, feel pain when it wasn't really there or not feel pain when it really was there. But it doesn't seem wacky to me that, like these people were so far down like a dark rabbit hole of manipulating human behavior 
you know, you just think of all these like CIA men like sitting up in the rafters, like applauding and like laughing and cackling, like chomping on their cigars or whatever, you know, like thinking this is like fucking great. Like now we can have, you know, like uh, hypnotized, you know, female operatives like honey trapping people or something or super spies like people that can never rat on the enemy. We'll never have that Korean War problem again where those, you know, pilots who got shot down admitted they were dropping chemical weapons. You know? Uh, it's like, uh, I don't know. It, just, it, it, it it makes sense. So, like, given what they're doing to her in general, I mean, they already tortured her, right? So it's, it's definitely not off limits that, like, they're going to hurt her, right? Yeah, no, it's not off limits that they're going to hurt her. Um, and... Yeah, it's just, like, uh, I mean, yeah, and, like, uh, it's, like, possible, like, what, in a, like, a homosexual culture of men, like, there's extreme, like, uh, misogyny that, like, you know, uh, could potentially be, but it is, like, very extreme, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's definitely much more, like, it's not part of, like, the normal demonstration of yeah like you know it's well of course yeah like of, it's of, not like i guess this isn't like a stage yeah. musician show of like look i can make you hop on one leg and bark yeah, like a dog a like of course demonstration of hypnosis like in a government context but, but also yeah, like none it. of the none of the mk like, ultra experiments were like were normal by the standards of like legal medicine you know they were all like incredibly eth- unethical and like yes, violated every like, rule in the book like they you know they'd already mm-hmm. like passed that plateau yeah. along they passed that checkpoint a long mm-hmm. time ago of just you know and they're bringing in yeah, you know they were bringing in nazis like, like nazi you know, concentration camp doctors uh, yeah there was like uh you know there are things like uh you know running like uh brothels and uh dosing people with uh you know psychedelic drugs and things like that uh which you know uh is pretty extreme but yeah but i mean they're also you know they're giving lsd to children and electroshocking them until they forgot who they were like they were doing really messed up experiments on people with like all kinds of drugs that definitely ruin people's lives i don't think their intent Mm -hmm. with this experiment was to destroy candy jones it was to show that basically look how much control i have over her Mm -hmm. that she's completely oblivious to pain I feel like there has to be something more to it than just that. Uh, well, okay. I uh, mean, let yeah. let. How about we? How about we? Yes, and this. Like, yes, they did the candle thing as a like sadistic demonstration of like the power of like the hypno programming, but also maybe there was something even darker going on. Well, I don't know. Well, I won't commit to saying they did the candle thing. I trust her. Like you know, on the basis, like you know, I'll like err on the side of of trusting her account. But if it did the candle thing there's something more to it than that that's like literally like you know an Anton. what thing. what is it about I the candle think. thing that that's sticking in your craw that that doesn't feel right that doesn't add up um because it's like it's just completely like you know outside the it really is like abnormal even by these standards it's very abnormal to use a to it's just that very unusual to do that to like because it would do permanent damage you know like it was it's burning it's ritual like burning of like someone's genitals like it's you know it's not just like demonstrative at all the idea that it's just to demonstrate how people can endure pain that's not the only purpose of that that would cause sexual trauma for sure 
whether you were hypnotized or not. Like, no doubt about it. Just that. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's also uh, the possibility it could have, they put it in the other way, you know, I don't want to get it too into it, but you know what I mean? Where then, you well, know, yeah, there'd still be heat and the, the, the wax burns you and stuff like that. But it, it's like more of a, it's like, it's still like a very traumatic, violating thing that probably then hurts that is or still whatever. Like this, you know, like, well, like what you just described, I think is really something where it's like this crazy, like burlesque show that's happening like i don't know i'm just saying like that is uh yeah i mean also it should be mentioned that like she absolutely like well also like she it wasn't easier it also wasn't if you read like the the transcript or the recreation of the transcript it is such a difficult thing to get out of her to admit like what he did what jensen did and then once she admits it she like bursts into tears and has like a total breakdown and like she's obviously like more traumatized by that than any other thing that she remembers happening so it Mm -hmm. and they did torture her at least presumably or they made her think she was being tortured in taiwan and that also was a very traumatic experience so i mean i get that it's like weirder and it's far out and it's it's bizarre but like your standard like you know but these are a bunch of fucking sickos these are fucking sickos man i don't know what to like you know what i mean like the the whole thing they're Mm -hmm. doing is basically deeply twisted and i think in his case he did start to get more angry with her when she repeatedly refused any of his like sexual advances reminds me of the fury and all those psychic teenagers how it was mm-hmm. like de rigor for the older woman and then john cassavetes to like start a sexual relationship with these like 16 year olds to like kind of get them under their their thumb a little bit and kind of like emotionally manipulate them and you know she was resistant to that he got a little pissy and was like maybe there was something personal in him that like but i mean obviously it had to have been the thing where if he did it all the old boys that were watching all these cia dudes would have thought they're like reacted like they're at a bachelor party in tijuana instead of you know what the fuck are you doing like this is insane you know like whatever it was they seem to be and I, i i i hear you on that like it's it really makes you beg the question of like how twisted are all these people just sitting around like watching this and thinking it's awesome like presumably they knew i don't know maybe they didn't recognize her but like maybe one of some of them would have i mean she was a little older but she was a famous pinup girl and well a lot of these guys might have been world war ii veterans maybe they had candy jones's pinup in their locker or whatever but then you know so like the, the level of twistedness of like I don't know. It's like seeing today, like having like Ariana Grande, uh, Grande, like go to CIA headquarters and like everyone's sitting around like, ha ha ha, like making her do stuff. And, you know, it's like hard to wrap your head around unless there's like, you know, this is this is a very compartmentalized, like kind of division within the CIA. And all, yeah, and this cult, is just normalized. Like yeah. A, like kind of a yeah, cult, much basically. A cult. Um, yeah. Like this is like cremation of care type shit. And they're just like, ha 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 ha. You know, cause if you think about it, like the ramifications of this with, uh, it kind of makes sense that the most evil people would be the most excited about harnessing this type of technology because like what mm-hmm. we can literally like hypnotize slaves who just like won't yeah. even ever like raise their hand against us or you know flinch if we like abuse them i feel like for a lot of like psycho type people um in this milieu like that sounded like a kind of like heaven to them 
and at the very least it was you know the the silver bullet maybe against the commies or something like that but yeah it's 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 dark it's bizarre and i mean not as bizarre as some of the things we heard in the franklin scandal with some of those foster children right i mean i think we can agree no not like well some of that what they described was like quite uh, you know like cannibalism things like that yeah which it, again uh, yeah. it brings right but, back around to yeah. to thinking about like what kind of things could you achieve by hypnotizing or drugging a child and then convincing them yeah, through various forms of trickery of hypnosis and uh by some of the the franklin uh uh allegation uh, like uh some of the franklin kids who came forward also mm. had some hang-ups around hypnosis i think I want to say Alicia Owen, like, uh, someone offered to hypnotize her, and she was very averse to the idea, which was a little bit interesting. Um, yeah, oh, I do, I do remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the other yeah, thing I, I, I wanted to mention is, like, a just a bizarro coincidence is that when she finally met um, Marshall Berger, you know, in when she started doing all this, she actually had met him before, and this is very bizarre, because... He just so happens to have been the first person to ever hypnotize Candy Jones in 1946, right after she got back from New York. I believe it was right around the time she got married to Harry Conover, but he did a hypnosis session with her over the phone because he was in Chicago. And I forget what it was. It was just about like anxiety or sleep or something like that. And I think they only talked on the phone once, but another very bizarre thing that like oh he just so happened to be the guy that you got referred to to like hypnotize you over the phone there's a a lot of evidence here she also believes that maybe dr jensen was injecting her with various drugs which he claimed even back in 1945 were vitamin shots when she was in the hospital in the philippines when he first met her and so it's conceivable at least that if he was already kind of on to this like tip of research that he became aware of candy jones excellent like hypnotizability back in 1945 and then basically i don't know maybe referred her to marshall Berger, his superior and then realized like years later oh what about candy jones you know she was a she scored a five on whatever the the normative scale of suggestibility was um the i think it's called the hypnotic uh induction profile yeah the hip developed by dr herbert spiegel and she was a five out of five which i guess is the rarest and most suggestible of them all and uh so so you know it's like how long did they have her kind of have their eye on her and were you know, I don't know. It's very creepy to well, think about. Well, it seems they definitely knew beforehand, uh, you know, like long in advance. Like in 1945, he was the guy who treated her in the Philippines. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Assuming, yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, did you, before we fully wrap up, did you want to mention that uh, sort of suicide connection that you yes. were thinking yes. of? Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll wrap up here, but I just noticed this in one of the last chapters, and I hadn't known it before, and it, it it's too perfect, and it blows my mind, and it makes me 100 fucking percent believe this whole story. But basically, the after the being taken out to Langley and stuff, you know, the, her relationship with Dr. Jensen started to fray, and she started talking more and more about stopping working for the cia and how she didn't want to do it anymore 
And I guess this was increasingly worrying Jensen because if, you know, she stopped seeing him and stopped working for him, who knows? One day she could be the dentist and get a sedative and then remember everything and start blabbing about it. And, you know, in short, she was maybe becoming a potential liability for Dr. Jensen. So one of the things that uh, that Nebel discovered in a lot of different uh, regression sessions was Candy talking about hurting herself or Arlene talking about Candy hurting herself and this idea of committing suicide, which like the, the further Nebel kind of probed into it, it felt like this had been a suggestion that had been implanted in her by uh, Dr. Jensen. And so that is, in fact, what he eventually sussed out. And they she was able to remember that around 1972 when their relationship the relationship with Jensen was starting to fray um, and this would have been like right before she happened to meet Long John Nebel who I guess inadvertently maybe kind of saved her from this because basically there was another there was a trip that Dr. Jensen wanted to send her on to the Bahamas and she ended up not taking this trip because she met Dr. John Nebel and got swept up in a war woman romance and then got married and then, you know, all this stuff happened and she never went on another mission again. But what really... So what what apparently she remembered, um, I'll just read... Yes, I'll just read it here. Um, that in, an, in yet another hypnotic session, also undated, Nebel was to learn more about Jensen's suicide plans for Candy... In this instance, he was filled in by Arlene. Uh, the session opened with Arlene preparing to leave on a mission, as instructed by Jensen. She was in Miami during the regression, and she told Nebel that Candy had traveled to Miami. But once there, Arlene had been instructed to take over, which she had. So here's the, the transcript. Uh, John says, do you like Candy? Arlene says insolently, with almonds. Are you brave, Arlene? Not brave, just stupid and strong and fast. Isn't Candy strong? She's strong, but not as fast as me. Did Jensen ever suggest to you that you commit suicide? He can't, he can't get rid of me that fast. I won't let her or him. Well, if Candy dies, you're dead. Candy doesn't know that. Do you think Candy would ever kill herself? It's not called killing. It's stopping what is. What does that mean? Condescendingly, it means stopping the progression of a positive action. That doesn't make any sense annoyed it's the stopping of movement you mean death yes of course would you like to be dead arlene i am if you're dead how can you talk why don't you die and find out <laughs> and uh mm. you know i guess uh that would so she basically said yeah like basically uh she said later that arlene told him that candy was in very deep trouble with jensen and jensen was looking for candy he asked what will jensen do if he finds candy make her commit suicide no, Arlene replied, but Candy might kill herself. She might. And then here's the real money shot. Um, so finally, <clears throat> after multiple sessions, uh, more details of Jensen's plan to have Candy commit suicide resurfaced. It was to occur in December of 1972. 
Jensen had booked a first-class seat for her on Pan Am to Nassau, the Bahamas. She would check into the Paradise Beach Hotel, where she'd been a frequent visitor over the years as Candy Jones, but Arlene Grant would meet her there. That was part of Jensen's plan. He told Candy she would receive a call during her second day on the island. She asked him who would be calling her, but he refused to tell her. I assume it was to be Jensen himself who would call, and his call would cause Arlene to take over from Candy and guide her to a steep bluff overlooking the sea. Arlene would make the high dive, just as she had done when they were children, and it would be over for Candy Jones. Did you know that Arlene planned to kill you in the Bahamas? Neville asked Candy during a session in 73. Yes. What had you done to make her angry with you? It's all too complicated, Candy replied. I was told to meet her there. Where? The Bahamas. The Paradise Beach Hotel. When did this happen? Neville asked. Last November. That's when I was told. Neville asked Arlene about the incident during a regression that took place in their apartment on an unspecified date. Candy is just a dragnet around your neck, Arlene told Neville, but she needed you. All she, had to, all she had all the time in the world to go to Paradise Island in December and take the high dive, but she married you. If Candy killed herself, Arlene, you'd be dead too. Oh no, replied Arlene, I'd be the one who survived. Jensen had persuaded Arlene of that. Um, and okay, so rewind real quick, because as soon as I saw nassau bahamas paradise island paradise beach hotel and then i saw it called paradise island the sus alarms in my head just started like uh screeching basically and i looked it up to see if she was referring to the same exact thing and yes indeed jensen had her go to paradise island the home of resorts international the mafia cia joint venture joint venture money laundromat reportedly set up by Alan Dulles and Meyer Lansky in the 1950s that was purchased by none other than uh, former Cheeto-in-Chief Donald J. Trump in 1987. Uh, best I mean... Sprawling Resort Atlantis. Yes, now owned by uh, Saul Kersner, who's a apartheid-era, um, like a Zionist South African uh, mafia-connected mm-hmm. uh, real estate magnet, uh, finally, Atlantis I think, took over that. Yeah, yes. yeah. So Paradise uh, Island is Resorts International, like right out of yes. Mark Lombardi's unfinished interlock. Uh, so mm-hmm. if you wanted your CIA hypno-programmed asset to go commit suicide, what better place to go than the CIA's very own resort island, right? Hmm. Uh, I guess, yeah. That to I mean, me is like a smoking gun. Nobody knew about. Also, the idea that anybody could infer like the like that this could be a detail that was worked in there because of an association with CIA that this was virtually unknown in like the 1970s that yeah. Paradise Island mm-hmm. Resorts International was like a hub of CIA and mafia activity it, it it's yeah. not very well known today for that matter um but you know this is yeah, yeah. like that that's a deep cut right there mm-hmm. that like they're going to send you to the CIA island of the Bahamas that's totally corrupt and then you're going to jump off a cliff and then we're not going to have any problems about it yeah there's a lot there's a couple details like that where which I, that's what i think like you know the story gains the most credence from is there's not like i don't know if that's like if she had said like you know we have like a base there or something like or you know we have like a then that would be like more of a smoking gun there's a but there's a couple of circumstantial things like that where like it seems like things that didn't really come to light until after this whole story do have like uh you know uh, or, or sort of corroborated or sort of uh you know uh foreseen in the story like there mm-hmm. are you know aspects of the actual mk ultra stuff that wasn't really known that yeah. uh does kind of come through 
I'm a little on the fence with this one. Uh, just like one thing that like I I find it like odd how like he leads her kind of in hypnosis like and asks her like did they have this like sort of yes or no questions like you know giving her kind of like uh, you can kind of see like there's a collaborative aspect of the storytelling in some ways but you know yeah i'm on the yeah fence for those yeah I, more like, so that's one thing that like kind of like eh, but there are some things that circumstantially make me think like yeah you know like uh she did kind of uh foresee this thing or you know in advance and this does line up with uh other things that we know about this type of phenomenon uh, yeah, so, I mean, we're, we're talking yeah. about basically th- these are things that started coming out in 1973. So Watergate was going on at that time. But the revelations about MKUltra, mind control research, that was still at least like a year or two away from coming out. Mm-hmm. Like probably 1975 to 77 were the peak years where these revelations hit. And this book yeah. came out in the middle of it, but the 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 regression stuff and the stuff that Long Chong Nebel was doing was long before, yeah. in '73, and there was really no reason. It even does note in the book that at first, when she brought up things about the FBI or the CIA, he wasn't even he wasn't like us, where we would have been like, what, you know, like he was yeah. kind of like he 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 got into like CIA conspiracy stuff kind of later. Uh, on in like the 70s and going into the 80s i guess but he wasn't he didn't particularly see it as like oh wow like oh i I, he just thought huh there's something weird going on so he he, so i i noticed that and i think bane kind of mentions that that you know even though obviously this isn't necessarily the perfect person you want doing a hypnotic regression because he's her husband and he kind of has like a a really subjective stake in this he he really didn't lead her that much in the beginning and would kind of let her he he tried not to like really force her except then later when she was recalling very when he was really sold on you know this entire thing i think he tried to press her more on like specifics and stuff but a lot of these things came up he says a lot of the 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 details that were first laid out really came about kind of spontaneously and a lot of times Nebel did not always put her in a trance. Sometimes she slipped into it and then he would just kind of roll with it and ask her questions, right. but he wasn't necessarily always putting her in the trance. So he did sometimes later to kind of get more information and stuff like that, but a lot of times it would just happen spontaneously. So I don't know. I think overall, I think of the whole, you know, later on, I think the USO angle is also something that is really interesting. We yeah. haven't talked as much about Bryce Taylor's Thanks for the Memories, which I read. I feel like I read most of it like seven or eight years ago or something like that. But one of the big antagonists in that one is Bob Hope, the comedian, who was yeah. very well known for being like Mr. USO. He did USO tours all throughout yeah, his life and, yeah, and everything. Right. Mm-hmm. And you, you will also remember who was the head of the USO in World War II when all these sketchy fools were roaming around. Do you remember? Uh, Ronald Reagan, right? No, no. no. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan probably worked for the USO. Uh, no, it was Prescott Bush. Oh, really? Mm, yeah. Yeah, it was. Ronald it was Reagan Prescott was Bush. in the USO at one point, right? Yeah, yeah. He no, like he was in the USO. Oh, uh-huh. he did like some USO movie. Did yeah, he? no, no, he did, he did. Yeah, there was there were multiple this is the movies. Army. Yeah, That's yeah, this what is I'm the army. Mm-hmm. It's just, but you know, um, then you think about USO like Bob Hope and like I think a big thing in Bryce Taylor's book 
is like the USO is kind of a front for like using these kind of, you know, beta sex operatives and stuff like that. And I don't know. It's like very, you know, it also kind of reminds me of just taking it full circle, that deleted portion of Apocalypse Now Redux where they have a USO show with a bunch of Playboy playmates. And then like Mm -hmm. they they start like the the young men are like so insane and like sex crazed they like start a riot and like tear down the stage and the women have to be like evacuated by helicopter it is interesting i don't know what you think if you think this is like a real thing but the fact that this was published by playboy press yeah is an intriguing kind it's kind of like hustler Mm -hmm. publishing like jfk conspiracy stuff it's like what were you guys like well they also i remember during the mothman episode uh during my research for the mothman episode reading that they had like you know they were kind of they dipped their toes into this stuff i remember they had like considered they almost published like a big write-up on ufos by john keel like the definitive article on ufos you know so Hmm. they were kind of you know in the same way that national Enquirer, like now sort of like a tabloid but like they were associated with the paranormal for a while Mm -hmm. kind of like that type of stuff i don't know for whatever reason yeah they they were a repository for more edgy kind of countercultural writing i guess you know as the Mm -hmm. old cliche goes oh i just buy playboy for the articles you know but i guess they did have but it's just like it's it's kind Mm -hmm. of like a i don't know if it's like a weird shit coding thing of like if we put it in playboy then it's not going to have quite the same like level of legitimacy that it would in like you know the nation or something like that yeah, I'm not really might not have wanted to take it on though, you know. Like, exactly, uh, exactly. Like you know, you could say it both ways. You know, maybe it's to their yeah. Uh, yeah, and it makes like, me want just the whole like the Playboy bunnies, the Hugh Hefner being like this mega yeah, pimp sure, kind of, of person yeah, that yeah, is yeah. totally respected, but then also has this like counterculture cred. He's got all the all the Laurel Canyon celebrities are hanging out in his grotto you know and he's got like this harem of little like bunnies who sound a lot like the kind of you know the stereotype of like the beta sex kitten though of course he could just be coasting off of the fumes of like fame celebrity and like and pimp techniques basically like you know he's doing what any kind of a you know brothel owner or a pimp or you know somebody like that would do but it's interesting that they would kind of like co-sign this project and also just to mention because i think my my first thought when i discovered this like i don't know seven or eight years ago i was really looking around for like you know books that could be like adapted into screenplays at the time that or that i would want to write and i was getting into all this like dark stuff and when i first read about this it was like oh my like why isn't this a movie and mm-hmm. oh my god like this would be like this would be a great film potentially and it turns out like mm-hmm. i'm obviously not the only person that thought that it says right here on the back of the book that and i did i, I did read this at the time which kind of gave me like a you know a, a pit in my gut a little bit the 20th century fox paid significant money for the rights to this book as a film vehicle for jane fonda comrade jane hanoi jane uh yet never produced the movie despite attempts at screenplays by three of hollywood's best and fox has refused to sell the rights to the many producers who've expressed interest in making the film why the cia attempted to suppress the book as did one of the doctors a physician to the stars Oh, who spearheaded the intelligence agency's mind control experimentation? So, okay, so a physician to the was stars. What did Kroger we say right at the beginning? Uh, I don't know if it was a uh, or Kroger. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah we William we Kroger. yeah. I guess we mm-hmm. still. It was William S. Kroger, 
or his partner who so either yeah um, uh, what's it marshall Berger or dr gilbert jensen uh and one of them was william s kroger in real life uh apparently i don't know if i buy the whole thing about william j bryan not being involved because it almost sounds like a kind of thing you would implant to like you're never gonna remember this guy because he's like too important and like he's obviously identifiable because he's like 300 pounds you know what i mean he's got like a huge Mm -hmm. personality it's very memorable why don't we just like maybe there's some other scientists that were like involved that or yeah i don't know like i mean it seems like they she they could really suggest a lot of things to her maybe they could suggest her on an even deeper level to like never remember this guy like you do not know him at all like you've never heard of him etc which is like we said weird because he has the name of a very prominent politician or you know almost the same name as like a famous you know a political figure that people probably still would have somewhat remembered even if only from like inherit the wind and the snopes monkey trial or whatever or the scopes monkey trial Mm -hmm. uh sorry i said snopes because you know they were debunking um stuff uh in that but you know i i I don't know i I definitely want to look more into these doctors now because i will i will say as a final thing like you know i was able to buy this book for i don't know 25 dollars online they reprinted it in 2002 so there, there's two runs of it. It's not so bad like some books, like Esther Brooks' hypnotism book on Amazon, which I think is hundreds of dollars, mm-hmm. and you can't find a PDF yeah. of it anywhere. This, there is no way to find a PDF of the control of Candy, the CIA's control of Candy Jones. Like I looked yeah, I everywhere, know. right? Like we're pretty, pretty yeah. we're, without incriminating ourselves, we're pretty good at sourcing written information (laughs) through various avenues this is just something that people haven't scanned for whatever i think that it did exist but yeah they definitely i I did see a couple things where it's like there was a pdf of it at one point but it's been removed for whatever reason so Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know uh maybe people have scanned it or had had a copy at one point but it's become unavailable so yeah there's another point uh in favor of the story oh another thing that did jump out at me was the connection between the FBI, the sort of seamless movement from the FBI to the CIA in the story, mm-hmm. which yeah. does kind of go along with, you know, a lot of the material that we have about Esther Brooks is from the FBI, you know, and that yeah. was who he was communicating with a lot of the time, in addition to Navy intelligence. So it kind of yeah. uh, does bridge the gap between those two things. I mean, they're both like famous alphabet agencies, like, uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, it is, those both were interested in this, you know, it's not like the FBI had no interest in it i mean despite their failure to communicate on 9-11 yeah know, right i mean see that's what's, that's uh, kind of funny that we like for the last 20 years we've all been inculcated with this meme that the intelligence agencies like don't talk to each other and in like some respects that's true there's always bureaucratic turf wars and there's a lot of stovepiping of intelligence and compartmentalization even whole divisions of the cia don't know what other divisions of the cia are doing and all that but to say that they absolutely like did not interact and i think particularly in this hot cold war period of the like the 50s and the 60s and the 70s that they did collaborate a lot because of course the, the cia is not technically per its charter allowed to operate on american soil but now we know they were absolutely infesting they were all over the place but maybe sometimes especially for kind of introductions to maybe recruiting somebody for government work you might start with the fbi because that's uh, feels appropriate you know because fbi is domestic 
you know, uh, law enforcement and CIA is foreign. And then once you're kind of like taken into the FBI fold, then they can like pass you off over just like how, you know, the, the, the CIA shipped, uh, sheep dipped people, uh, like maybe Oswald into the U S military, but they were actually CIA operatives. And there's definitely FBI people. There, there's people that have jumped that line from FBI to CIA back and forth over their the course of their career depending on what they needed yeah. to get accomplished so yeah but yeah it's definitely it's like a unique and interesting tale mm-hmm. and there are just like yeah there's a couple uh there's just a couple of things that like uh yeah one interesting tidbit uh from john mark's uh work is that he did an interview with milton klein uh, who was like a pretty, uh, another pretty famous hypnotist, uh, who, you know, and like a uh, theorist and, uh, of hypnosis and of hypnotherapy, who I guess died in 2004. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, he said to John Marks in an interview that like evidence really does exist that has not been published that, you know, you could make a Manchurian candidate, you know, you really could, uh, we mm. maybe should do an episode about john mark's book like at some point you know because really yeah that was the first one to come out and explore this yeah. uh kind of idea and yeah and i think i forget if that was if he got into sirhan sirhan in that book at all mm-hmm. um i think that he did uh get into it um yeah there's uh yeah. just on, on the on the thing of you know just hypno assassins whatever uh in the introduction um, which was Operation written. Mind Control I'm thinking of. Oh, Operation Mind sorry, Control. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but in, in the introduction, they know in passing, I actually didn't know this, that, well, they do say, uh, yeah, one uh, one of the physicians, okay, now this is interesting too, uh, because even though he said William J. Bryan had nothing to do with Candy Jones, the introduction, who I think was written by somebody else, it might have been Dr... Herbert C. No, no, this is this is written by Bain, uh, but I think it's the 2002 introduction. He says one of the physicians who oversaw the experiments on Candy was also involved with Sirhan Sirhan prior to his shooting RFK, and on top of that, it's been documented that James Earl Ray was hypnotized in Los Angeles two months prior to killing, well, allegedly killing Martin Luther King. Mere coincidences without probative value, perhaps. Then again, so okay. Who's this physician that was doing work on Sirhan Sirhan before he shot RFK, who was also overseeing experiments on candy? Was that uh, Berger, perhaps? You know, was it was it William J. Bryan? I don't know, because he says that, you know, she insists. I wonder if he put that in there for legal reasons. That like yeah, saying that like him and all you and all your fat friends are trying to hypnotize me, and he was like, "Oh shit, that's mm-hmm. gonna be like way too obviously a reference to William J. Bryan." So I'm gonna put this mm-hmm. thing in here to swerve away from that and not get totally sued. I don't know. I wonder if uh, I wonder if Donald Bain's still alive. The other great Bain in our uh, on our bookshelf. Yeah, the other. Yeah, you know? I keep thinking of S.K. Bain. Yeah. Uh, maybe if I he's wonder, yeah, like if uh, he's still around, maybe we'll, we'll we'll get him on and talk. One day. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, we could do the two Bains in conversation on oh, uh, these that'd topics. Be great. That'd be great. Uh, yeah, we yeah. would host uh, that. Uh, you know, Congress. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so I don't. I also don't know if 20th Century Fox uh, is ever going to give up those those uh, those movie rights. But you know, um, 
Pick me, pick not. me, Fox. Pick. Oh wait, no. Oh yeah, my God. I will. I will work for free. <laughs> yeah, I will work for free. Uh, wait, yeah. hold on. I just realized something horrible. It's not Fox anymore. It's Disney. Oh, oh we're never seeing that movie. We're never yeah, seeing that movie. Never, it's going to the Disney Vault well, forever. We'll see. Uh, we'll see the uh, the techniques, um, you know, uh, outlined in the book, uh, implemented. We'll see it in a way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Every yeah, day, like, every uh, day. Yes. Yeah, like, well, maybe if there was, like, some superhero angle you could put on it, like, you know, she was hypnotized to be, like, a superhero, like, and she I think that was, like, in, like, one of the Marvel. Captain America movies, isn't, like, his buddy get basically, like, hypno-programmed into being, like, a fascist mercenary or something? Dude, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. He's, like, pre- oh, of course, the Winter yeah. Soldier is, like, programmed by Russians or something, right? Like, yeah, yeah, You know, exactly, it was the exactly. Russians that did it. Yeah, it was yeah, always the Russians, yeah, exactly. Because so the Winter Soldier seems like a Russian guy. You know, it sounds like a Russian. It does, you know, just the uh, like, cold, yes, uh, dead, uh, um, soulless. Um, yeah, so that's uh, that. Mm-hmm. I think we can. Bucky was revived in Moscow, but survived, oh, suffered God. brain damage with amnesia, and he got a bionic arm. This is the Wikipedia article on, on Winter Soldier, aka Bucky Barnes. Well, you know, it, it actually is all around the media. If you think about like the born identity, it's literally this, but yeah. he's like an actual well, like is, commando. Like, it is like a super common uh, media trope. Like, you know, uh, I was watching like spoilers for like the shitty new Star Trek show that you shouldn't watch because it's like a waste of time. But there's like a sleeper agent plot line in that um you know they i mean it's like yeah it's a it's a trope you know so it's like not like the idea of it like manchurian canada is like a cultural phenomenon you know i mean really like this even goes back to like the the hashashin you know like the Uh whole idea of like brainwashed assassins you know mind-controlled black assassins yeah uh so you know it's not like this is something that was like beyond the paw like to have this these notions but you know there are like uh like they got caught like doing this exact stuff and there are certain things that you know do seem to line up or at least could like fit this uh you know uh the pattern that we know so yes yes like, oh uh, you know what yeah, and it what? does it is like an yeah. interesting like indication of that kind of yeah like you the hollywood like uh connection the sort of like uh vigilant citizen style like bsk thing like with her being I, visible yeah yeah you know? and I, uh, i'm i'm yeah i'm i'm not convinced that we've like fully mapped out uh that hell yet but i feel like we're getting a little bit closer because now i'm thinking of even more ways and, and subtler ways that you could like if like this whoever this guy was who was a physician to the stars is the guy who was programming Candy Jones, that opens up a very disturbing world of possibilities of, well, who were his famous clients? And, you know, I mean, I even remember a kind of one of those uh, earlier, like Obama era kind of conspiracy stories that kind of floated around on like Reddit or something. And I'll see if I could look it up one day. It was, it was like he, Obama, it alleged that Obama had some kind of spiritual advisor throughout his 2008 campaign and mm-hmm. like somebody saw him before he gave his like I guess big speech, I I, I want to say I think it was two thousand eight when he like gave out to give his big acceptance speech for the nomination that like he went in a room with like the spiritual advisor and then he came out and he looked like he was in a trance 
and then he went out yeah. and like totally like killed uh, it and like brought the house down <laughs> and so like is obama like got uh, some weird nlp like handler that like trances him into being into like full obama mode so that he just goes out and gives like the soaring kind of rhetoric with um you know all of his like his kind of nlp-ish cadence of um you know how he he spoke and and all that and just other people too like athletes and stuff like you know tom brady talking about like the the witch rituals that uh giselle bunchen does for him like before games like she does like mm. shamanic rituals on like an altar and stuff and you know like how i mean these people are all about being the best also uh i can't remember if i i mentioned it uh in the last thing we did about tiger woods and how he was you know he was brought up by since a baby to play golf and you know was actually there's a clip in the because i watched the hbo documentary there's a clip of him on the fucking bob hope show like hitting golf balls when he's two and i was just like oh my god (laughs) no his dad was a green beret involved in covert operations in vietnam he did two tours was a demolitions expert like going behind enemy lines and he would bring him to the navy golf course in orange county to teach him how to play golf as a child. And when Tiger was in middle school, he brought in a Navy psychologist to hypnotize him. Hmm. And multiple people, even in this very normie documentary, said that sometimes like Tiger Woods seemed to be in a trance when he was playing. And so perhaps he was taught to self-hypnotize or something along those lines. Well, I mean, yeah, like a lot of people will say that like when an athlete like is uh, at his, in the on zone. top of his game, you know, he's he's in flow. Yeah, exactly. He's in the zone, you know, which yeah. is that's like a, if we're postulating like William Joseph Bryan as like the hypnotist uh, in this case, like that basically was his like whole philosophy of hypnosis. And I think that really is kind of like the the best way to think about it is something that like isn't like this mysterious power or something. Yeah. But kind of like a concept used to organize like a bunch of different ways of like uh the interaction between the mind and like the you know reality and things like that uh so yeah especially in the place of the entertainment uh, industry which is like so predicated upon faking it till you make it basically that this becomes an incredibly alluring technique for a lot of people with the whole recent like harry and megan thing you know i remember like hearing harry and like someone being like well you know you look so happy like in this picture and like one of them being like well you know like uh we have i wanted to die smiles like when we go out yeah yeah exactly like she's like literally suicidal (laughs) you know according to to her account but she uh like you know has this even you know she's i mean i guess she is an actress and everything but yeah uh both of them like were able to just be all smiles no matter how bleak things are you know uh so absolutely like yeah have to like you know or even like if you like are in a movie that sucks and like you hate it and it's an awful experience like joss whedon like sexually assaulted you or something mm-hmm. you have to get out there and be like it's the best experience like what a groundbreaking like n- new version of like the avengers 5 or whatever you know totally. like it was just an, a- amazing to work on this you know and just like talk up and praise someone who like uh yeah so it's yeah, a, yeah. are there uh, elements definitely. of of like self-hypnosis at play even in that well, yeah you know? well, sure. like even like you know even if you're just like relax like just breathe like you know i'm just mm-hmm. gonna go out there like you know like doing that type of thing like that uh like that's 
pretty much like a form of hypnosis, right? Like what you know, in a way, yeah, a subtle form is. Yeah, it like, is. Uh, uh, yeah, it's apparently it's true. It's medically. Uh, yes, it's apparently it's medically verifiable that like if you are feeling anxious and you take like three or four like very deep breaths in a row that like it will like chill you out physiologically sure. yeah that you would know? make sense to me yeah yeah uh, yeah exactly you know so yeah. we have um, yeah i guess you know our, our bodies are our minds are very powerful things over our bodies um, they definitely are yes and you know yeah how much of powerful. like how much of how much of like maybe what you would call like any kind of performative excellence in a child is being held back by their psychological hang-ups or fears or anxieties or things like that that's why it's it's kind of interesting uh candy jones looked at uh at arlene as like this super person that was so much better but maybe actually that's just like candy jones at her optimized ability and then her fears and anxieties and other things of kind of her main conscious personality are kind of holding her back a little bit from tapping into that so you can see with like a sing a pop singer an athlete an actor how you know if you tell them they could get to that place of maximum potential you know operating at their absolute maximum you know that who who wouldn't want that in this kind of system where you know everything's so precarious and you know the drive to be the best you know the system usually draws people that naturally for whatever reason like need to be the best you know want to rise to the absolute top and you know whatever tools you could give them and you know maybe this is kind of thing that's like an occulted medical technology that is not uh emphasized and rolled out to the masses because it gives people who are in the know like a competitive edge you know marion williamson will say something like yeah i don't know maybe but yeah it's kind of like marion williamson will say like oh you know like we can you like uh use our minds or like through like positive thinking or whatever like you know be like what you're anti-vax or like whatever you know like shut up you know like so it's kind of like this uh thing where suggesting that like prayer could have any positive or material effect like that is absolutely religious and like mm-hmm. must be completely like rejected from like just like, cast out completely from the sphere of like uh you know acceptable discourse uh mm-hmm. the uh, notion that this like that is not like it's not our value sh- yeah, it is not a value whatever, you know, <laughs> like it is not a, uh so it can't be uh accepted yeah yeah um yeah, um, yeah and i, I mean yeah. it is yeah uh we should like uh we should wrap well, up but one thing that i did think of while uh you know uh dealing with uh you were talking earlier was uh the actor uh and the sort of teacher of acting uh, michael chekhov who worked with like mm-hmm. marilyn monroe um oh. uh he was russian uh yeah and he had like a and he actually played in uh the hitchcock movie which was actually called spellbound uh oh. a psychiatrist uh that was like his one like really famous role um, but he was really known for, like, uh, being a teacher of, uh, like, Stanislavski's method and, like, mm. other stuff and kind of, like, uh, you know, uh, helping actors, like, to create, uh, their, um, you know, own, like, sort of, like, inner persona and stuff like that. And, like, uh, he kind of, like, helped Marilyn Monroe to create, like, the, the image of Marilyn Monroe and things like that, you know, so this type of, you know, he worked with, like, wow. uh, 
a bunch of people like Clint Eastwood, you know. Uh, uh, who so, is at, according I, to he, Alex Jones, was at Bohemian Grove. He saw him there. No. Yep. Uh, yeah. yeah, so uh, he like, uh, yeah, apparently he had something called like uh, the psychological gesture uh, from like symbolism. Uh Hmm. But like, uh, and uh, he was very into like spiritualism and things like that. So it, it might be an interesting. Connection. That is interesting. We we should like do a whole kind of like you we, know we should do a whole Marilyn Monroe it. thing one day. I think there's the, like the yeah. her employment at Lookout Mountain Air Force Base. I mean, according to I think I, I believe that Kathy O'Brien, I think, and Bryce Taylor both pointed to Marilyn Monroe as like an early rollout prototype of the, maybe the type of person that they made Candy Jones into. Mm-hmm. And that, you yeah. know, so she, you know, whenever they talk about beta sex kitten kind of thing, like, you know, the happy birthday, Mr. President thing always comes up and, you know, she's having mm-hmm. affairs I, with JFK and Bobby and like mobsters mm-hmm. and, you know, going to look out mountain air force base doing God knows what, and then died under these really mysterious circumstances Eh, right. You know, like it, there's, it, it does make you think a little bit. It does make you think. Right. Um, I just. Uh, yeah, I mean, she would definitely be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to read because I don't think we mentioned it, and it's kind of an important. It's one of the rare pieces of evidence, and that is the phone message mm-hmm. that was left on oh, right. Candy yes. Jones' voicemail on July third, nineteen seventy-three, six months after. Uh, she married Long John Neville. And so this is the closest thing maybe to a smoking gun that she was working under the alias of Arlene Grant for the CIA. So basically the following on July 3rd, 1973, the following message was left on the telephone answering machine in their apartment. Quote, Japan Airlines calling on the 03 July at 410 p.m. Please have Miss Grant call 759-9100. She is holding now reservation on Japan Airlines Flight 5 for the 6th of July, Kennedy, Tokyo, with an open on to Taipei. This is per Cynthia that we are calling. Thank you. And so they got that weird message out of nowhere, and many people uh, that, you know, they, they, they called up to check, and the number was from Japan Airlines, so it was a real call, and... Um, but the trip was never taken, so there's no record in the airline's computer of who made the reservation for Miss Grant. And nobody really knows what per Cynthia means, but people they talk to who worked in airlines have said that Cynthia sounds like the code name for organization. And, uh, you know, Bain cannot help but speculate that were I with the CIA looking for such a code, Cynthia would be my hands down choice for a word to indicate uh, CIA because you can't spell Cynthia without CIA. So that's hey, true. Take from that what you will, but that that that's enough for me. Uh, I'm pretty convinced they did this, and uh, well, good uh, good for Candy Jones and Long John Nebel. They went on. Was that before they went on the radio with this, uh, or after? That's a good question. I, mean, obviously I don't. It would be much more impressive if it were before. So yes, uh, it would. I. That's a good. Um, good question. I don't actually know when she. No, that's. I don't know the exact date when she started going public on, or if it was in like 1974, when she finally started doing it. Yeah, I don't know. I think she had already started working there, but she hadn't actually maybe started 
I don't know. We're going to have to punt on that. <laughs> I forget. Yeah. Exactly. Well, flipping uh, through the book right yeah, now. But think, you're right. Yeah. It would be extremely... I think it's still it's still interesting because uh, it would still hypothetically require somebody from Japan Airlines to, like, crank call her or for her to arraign. You, you know, you go down that rabbit hole again of, like, oh, it would have to all be an elaborate hoax, uh, you know, for... But it is more yeah. impressive. Well, it is more impressive overall. The, yeah. Yeah, and I think and, even yeah, if yeah, she had yeah. started... Because this is six months after she married him. I think she had just mm-hmm. started doing the regression session, so they might not have even gotten to, like, Arlene Grant and... Uh, like I don't even know if Nebel knew about that yet, but mm-hmm. they do have a yeah. tape. They, they, they did preserve the and tape right, of it. They called so them they up have and it. there was like no Cynthia at Japan Airlines or something. Yeah. right? but you said it was yeah. really from them. Uh, yeah, the the phone number that yeah. was called from that like showed up on their phone bill was the actual Japan Airlines reserv- reservations number, and the flight they were referring to was a real flight that was taking off like three days later. And so mm-hmm. all that information checked out, except, of course, why are they calling her Miss Grant and who is Cynthia? And, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, she never was able to hold on to her passport, the the one, um, the Arlene Grant passport, because Dr. Jensen had it. But, you know, that is sort of the sole. Um, I mean, there were, you know, there's anecdotal evidence of like friends who, like I said, who you know said she she told them that she was working for a government agency and she was traveling outside of the country and uh she actually wrote i think a letter maybe to like her life insurance company or maybe her attorney informing them is sometime in the 1960s that sometimes when she's traveling that she uses the aliases arlene grant and jessica wilcox which is her birth name and that because she was worried that if she died under any kind of circumstance or anything happened to her and she was traveling under the Arlene Grant passport that it might mess up her life insurance payouts to her children. So she does have that corroborating piece of evidence of like telling her, I don't know, either attorney or life insurance provider that, you know, sometimes she goes by the alias of Arlene Grant when, you know, ostensibly Mm -hmm. that name hadn't really been used since her childhood with her imaginary friend. And, you know, it's like in her conscious life, she didn't run around necessarily uh, or maybe you know she thought she was just doing this fully consciously but using this alias from her childhood and that it was all her idea but actually you know uh, dr jensen you know kind of was programming her leading her along to do it so i think either way it's a good piece a good little nugget of evidence yeah definitely um and so is like uh you know, just the like uh, the the idea of the passport, which I guess maybe Bane did see, or was it just something that she intimated that she had had, like uh, you know, the passport of her like wearing a wig? Did she still have that at the time that Bane was she, interviewing her? Not not that yeah. not the time that Bane was around. I can't remember if some of her friends or acquaintances ever saw it, but uh, mm-hmm. but it, she said that when it was kept by Dr. Jensen, as was her like wig and outfit. So Mm. he would go there, she would get her vitamin shots and then he would give her the wig and the outfit and the dark makeup and give her her passport and drive her straight to the airport and send her to, you know, Taiwan or wherever. So then, then when she would return, he'd do the same thing. He would inject her, bring her back to Candy Jones and then confiscate the passport and the wig and stuff like that. So she wasn't able to hold on to those things. Like, maybe, uh, you know, it was just, like, uh, good fortune, like, rather than uh, the idea that, like, uh, you know, uh, he, like, 
by virtue of his interests, like of John Neville's interests, you know, this, it, it seems like a coincidence that this would uh, come into his life, you know, that he would get married to someone like this. Maybe really, like, it just makes sense in that, like, someone who would be open to, like, performing hypnosis and, like, who would kind of know about these subjects would mm-hmm. be, you know, more in a position to sort of uncover these types of things. Uh, so, maybe. you know, that's maybe. another way of thinking about it. Like, hypnosis is, like, kind of, especially, like, I think, you know, maybe less so now. I don't know. It may be just as much now, but I feel like it's kind of, like, it's definitely, if you're into, like, UFOs and things like that, you know, hypnosis is a topic that comes up a lot because the whole aspect of, like, recovering memories and doing regression yeah. hypnosis, mm-hmm. that's part of how, like, abductions are recalled, you know? So. Yeah. Exactly. That was something that, like, you know, the fact that that'd be something that he it would occur to him to, like, do, you know, even to deal with his wife being, like, bitchy at times, like, you mm-hmm. know, like, uh, or you know, like, staring off into space, like, or, that, yeah, snapping you know, maybe at him. it's by or, virtue yeah. of, like, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I have to say, overall, like, like very, good, you know, good work, Long Jong Nebel. Uh, you know, you, yeah, yeah you, you broke a big I story. Read, like, in the course of reading about this, I read that he had, like, a long, heated... Uh, yeah, and, you know, it is, like, uh, of course, you know, uh, like, uh, you would not disbelieve, like, if someone, like, tells you some of these horrible things, like, it's just, like, not appropriate to, like, uh, disbelieve them. But, like, for what it's worth, like, you know, uh, like, you know, especially with such conviction and, like, you know, uh, what they've experienced, like, even if... Even if, like, it's a way of, like, processing, like, things that happened in one's childhood, like, you know, they're, it's real to them, so, like, you, you know, but Long John Neville, for his credit, he wasn't, like, a credulous person, you know, he was, like, not the type of, like, George Norrie type guy who was, like, wow, and you're saying these sounds really come from hell, like, his main posture <laughs> was, like, you yeah. know, that's, you know, not true, you know, like, uh, and, like, he actually had a long fight on the air, which I'm interested to listen to, because I, I just heard about it in, in reading mm-hmm. about him with, uh, uh, Gray Barker, who we mentioned in the Mothman episode, where he was like, oh. you know, taking him to task for like making up Men in Black stories and Ooh. you know all sorts of things like that. So yeah, he was uh, a very provocative yeah. interviewer, apparently. Like mm-hmm. very yeah, good at getting like his guests riled up, and not just take stuff like you know at face at face value or you know mm-hmm. or just accept whatever thing. Uh, you could almost so. call him. He sounds a little critically paranoid. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so. So yeah. Word. So right. yeah. Well, I guess we can uh, wrap up there. And yeah, uh, definitely. Yes. Uh, rest in power uh, to both of them. Yeah. Uh, rest in power, Kenny Jones. You expose the machinations yes, of the imperialists. One of the few to slip through the fingers and like mm-hmm. you know let her tale be known and like she lives today. Uh, you know, she her memory lives on with uh, you know anyone who is on the tail of the the bsk uh you know lords mm-hmm. and it, it is possible to escape yeah. you know yeah it is possible she, did, to she really did successfully escape you know so yeah that's something uh yeah, yeah. exactly and uh yeah she was definitely like a groundbreaking whistleblower uh, yeah so yeah impressive woman impressive woman mm-hmm. yeah yeah all right well uh that'll do it for now and uh yeah this ended up being long <laughs> it did it did but, but uh, it's a good one you know, it's a good one yeah uh, important stuff yeah, here it's a good one yeah yeah All right. it's important. <laughs> yeah so yeah, yeah um, a little known story little known story yeah, yeah needs I to be i did find like a really like 
I found like this obscure like science uh, channel like docu docu series like kind of like that's like you know vignettes about like twisted tales or something and like uh -huh. one of them was about candy jones uh, oh yeah yeah uh, it was not like the best treatment of the story but uh you know it had like a little dramatization of it uh of course yeah um yeah. wouldn't necessarily recommend that but yeah check out the book no there's not much uh, other media buy the book the book is worth it it's pretty solid and i guess buy it before you know they yeah. erase it from exactly existence. yeah maybe it could be an investment because it will just be scrubbed from yeah uh mm -hmm. existence and exactly yeah, Exactly. So yeah. get your hands on it if Scoop you can. Scoop it up while you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, until next time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. in her head she said